Before we get into things, today's episode is sponsored by NordVPN. Head to nordvpn.com slash mrcreeps for 66% off our two-year plan plus one month for free. And BetterHelp. Creepscast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash mrcreeps. Hi everyone, we've got a bone-chilling episode for you this week. Let's see if you can stay sane and make it through the entire collection of stories. Let us begin as we journey further into Mr. Creep's mind. If you're driving down I-75 at night, don't stop. Written by Steel Thunder I am a truck driver working for one of the major companies in America right now. When I first joined the industry, I was just a guy looking for a career that would give me some security and some extra money at the end of the day. Well, I certainly got that, and I've been able to see sights most people wouldn't dream of seeing all while being paid to do it. Things were great until recently. One day, I got sick of constant traffic, so I decided to change my entire schedule and start driving at night. Sure, it would suck not being able to fully enjoy the views while driving, but I figured I could always switch up my schedule again if I ever missed it. That being said, I've started seeing some genuinely unsettling things since I've started driving at night. Whether it's a trick of the mind or I've actually witnessed these things, I can't say. But I do know one thing, and that's that I'll never stop at certain rest stops ever again. If you have a little while, I'd like to tell you a story of mine. Take it as you will, but I'm hoping that this will reach someone out there and perhaps even save their life. One night, I was driving a load from Las Vegas to Omaha. A trip I haven't done before, but at this point, I've had plenty of experience with driving through forests, high altitudes, and rough mountainous terrain. My GPS was taking me along I-70, which was practically a straight shot to my destination. This would mean that I would have to pass through Colorado and its many forests. I figured that it would, like many states, have little towns nestled in the trees that I could stop at to take a break. Not really checking into it though, I started on my journey. It didn't take me long to realize that I wasn't encountering much civilization on my travels. A town here, a hamlet there, and then maybe a neighborhood or two that I would have missed if it wasn't for the one or two streetlights that they had set up. This was odd for sure, but not really cause for concern. I hadn't really driven through Colorado before, so... I figured that this state just loved its forests and didn't want to knock too much of it down to build cities. Knowing what I know now, I realized how naive I was being. They didn't do it out of the kindness of their hearts. There's something or somethings that prowl in these woods. Something that you nor I could comprehend. Before I continue, let me give you a quick lesson on how truck drivers' workdays work. To ensure truck drivers are not driving while fatigued, the federal government implemented hours of service that we must follow to a T. 
And to put it simply, a truck driver can work for a total of 14 hours a day, including break time, can drive for a total of 11 hours a day, and must take a 30-minute break during an 8-hour work period. Before going out in our trucks, my company gives us tablets to track our hours, so we can't cheat and work more than we're supposed to. Well, I was coming up on my required 30-minute break, and I was cursing myself for not planning out where I was going to stop first. There was nothing but trees around me. No vehicles, no wildlife on the side of the road. Absolutely nothing but forest. Rolling my eyes, I started to imagine the butt-chewing I was going to get from my manager about trip planning and staying within regulation. But as if the universe was throwing me a bone, I saw a sign saying, rest area two miles ahead. I thanked my lucky stars and prepared to turn into my home for the next 30 minutes. As I crest over the hill, my headlights illuminate another sign that reads, rest area, with a big arrow pointing to the off-ramp leading to it. I flip my blinker on and head up the ramp. What I find when I get to the truck parking was extremely off-putting. I see one other truck parked with its lights off, no smaller vehicles in the lot, and no service buildings anywhere. I pull behind the parked truck, set my parking brake, and mark myself as on brake on the tablet. Unbuckling myself, I reach back to my mini-fridge and pull out a water to sip on while I wait. And beginning to drink it, I grab my phone to play some videos on YouTube, but notice that I have no signal where I am. Of course I park in the only place off the interstate with no service. I groan out loud. Leaving me with nothing else, I just sit in my seat, observing my surroundings. Now, the human brain is a fascinating thing that no one truly 100% understands. On a moment's notice, people can start hallucinating or even hearing noises that aren't there. Believe me, I've tried to dismiss what I've seen as my brain playing tricks on me, but in every instance, I've been reminded of the physical evidence that I have of that night. As I was sitting there, I began observing my surroundings. My headlights couldn't illuminate much, but after a bit of sitting, I saw something that confused me. From the angle of our two trucks, I couldn't see it at first, but after getting up and switching to the passenger side of my truck, it was unmistakable. The truck in front of me had its passenger side door wide open. My heart racing, I started thinking of the many scenarios that would make sense of this. Was the driver out to go to the bathroom? No, I couldn't see any movement anywhere around the truck or mine. Were they cleaning out their cab? No. There wasn't a single light coming from inside the truck. Not even the automatic lights that came on when opening a door. This could only mean that the driver had not had the chance to close the door in a while. What could have happened to the driver? Are they hurt? Do they need help? Maybe this is an abandoned truck that is marked for a tow. But the driver forgot to shut the door before leaving it. As these thoughts ran through my head, my body began doing the dumbest thing I've ever done, something that I regret to this day. 
I got out my metal lever puller and my high-powered flashlight, and I got out of my truck to investigate. Yes, I know that you're thinking that I'm the dumbest man on earth, and I would have said the same thing reading similar scary stories on Reddit, but something came over me that night that told me to check it out. So off I went to investigate. I dismounted my truck, taking the key with me but leaving the headlights on. I turned my flashlight on, first pointing it all around me to get a better look at my surroundings. Trees, trees, and more trees, but more importantly, no sign of the driver of this truck. I slowly began to approach the open passenger side door of the truck in front of me. I could hear nothing around me. The night was unsettlingly silent, with no signs of life anywhere. With every step I take, my breathing becomes more and more erratic. I can see my breath. The sting of the cold air hitting my bare arms as I tremble forward. Getting to the open door, I see a gruesome scene. I flash my light into the cab to see a wide open curtain leading to the sleeper berth. Items strewn about as if a struggle took place. But my worst fears were confirmed when the smell hit me. The smell of iron filled the air as I began to climb into the cab an act that I immediately regretted and still regret to this day. Laying before me on the bottom bunk of the sleeper berth was the corpse of a woman. Her face showed an expression of raw fear. Her blue eyes glazed over and her mouth wide open, undoubtedly because she was screaming until her final moment. Her body was a mangled mess of broken bones and missing or detached limbs. Her stomach and chest were open, with her organs hanging out. It took everything out of me not to vomit right then and there, but that's when I noticed the most frightening detail. Steam coming from the body. I quickly got down from the truck and began moving back to my own where I planned to get the heck out of here before whatever did that came back. I didn't get more than three steps before I heard a man shout from the other end of the lot. I point my light in the direction and I see a tall, lanky man in jeans and a blood-stained gray t-shirt running towards me. I spring into action, sprinting back to my truck, closing and locking the door, as I fumble to get the key into the ignition and turn it over. All the while, I can hear the man getting closer and screaming at me. Finally, the truck bursts to life, but this relative moment of security gives me the chance to listen to the man that was now only 50 yards away from me. Wait, please, it's coming, please. The second I hear this, I see what exactly it is. Appearing from just behind him, I see another man, but this wasn't like anything you've seen before. This thing was easily 12 feet tall, its limbs impossibly skinny, resembling a circus performer on stilts. Its skin was different colors of gray, and it seemingly had a permanent and unnatural smile across its face, showing off its row of extremely sharp teeth. The worst part of it all was its demeanor. It skipped behind the man, 
as if it was a child following its parents down the street. The thing was gaining on the man insanely fast. All the while he screamed for me to help as I sat frozen in shock at the sight before me. The man was 50 yards away. Then 40, 30, 25, 15, and 10. He didn't make it. The thing caught up to him and before the man could take another step, the thing plunged its long, dagger-like arms through the man's back, with it appearing on the other end. The man looked down at the thing's arm now sticking through his chest and gave out one last whimper before the thing grabbed his head and its hand had pulled it from his torso as if he was a cheap action figure. The thing made a noise that I could only think of being a laugh as it drenched itself in the man's blood before turning its attention to me. I was still sitting there with the truck running, staring at the scene that would haunt me until the day that I die. The thing threw the man's body to the ground, like it was a broken toy that it wasn't interested in anymore, and it began skipping over to me, slower this time. It seemed like it wanted to toy with me, as it saw me squirm to get away. I immediately pushed in the brakes. It was nine yards away. I switched over to drive. Eight yards. I slammed on the gas as the truck lurched forward, only managing to get to five miles per hour initially. Six yards. Finally, my truck automatically switched to a 12th gear and began to accelerate rapidly. Eight yards away. I started toward the on-ramp. Twelve yards away. I turned onto the on-ramp and lost sight of it. I breathed a sigh of momentary relief before, out of my driver's side mirror, I saw a long branch-like gray arm swing towards my window. It missed its mark by mere inches, scraping against my truck with a loud bang, followed by a scrapping and a screech that I could only attribute to a frustrated creature. I kept my foot on the accelerator, my face streaming with tears and my pants reeking of you-know-what. I drove and kept driving, not stopping until I got to a truck stop in Denver, where I parked and cried for a solid 20 minutes. I wandered into the shop and cried for help, but the workers didn't believe my story. The cops were called, but they didn't believe me either. They attributed my hysteria to sleep deprivation, and that's the story that they told my manager. I was soon released from my services and was given a plane ticket back to Florida, where I now drive locally. I saw in the news not much later that the trucking couple and their truck were found a couple of days later by highway patrol who were quick to chalk it up to a rogue bear attack. But I know what I saw and I know it was real because just the other day I drove up to the closest of my company's terminals where my old truck was towed to so I could collect my things. When approaching the driver's side door, I saw a large dent inches from the window and a deep metal bending scratch following it. Take everything I told you today as you will. 
I really don't care if you believe me or not, but I beg you not to go looking to verify my claims. This is a demonic creature that feeds off of the fear it fosters and will play with you while you struggle to get away. I can only hope that I will never come across such a creature again. Whatever you do, if you must drive down I-70 at night through the Colorado forest, please keep moving. Do not stop for anything or anyone. If you must stop, find a place that's well lit with plenty of people, and please, oh please, stay away from the trees. Support for Creepscast is brought to you by NordVPN. Many of you might be familiar with NordVPN, as they are a recurring sponsor for the show. Not only are they known for keeping your online identity safe and secure by encrypting your personal information, but it's also perfect for accessing all your favorite shows and content through popular streaming services. Regardless of where you live, NordVPN allows you to change your virtual location with one click, so you no longer have to worry about your favorite shows being unavailable where you live. This is a total lifesaver for me, and I love the ease and accessibility that NordVPN provides. If you're interested, head to nordvpn.com slash mrcreaves for 66% off your two-year plan plus one month for free. That's a little less than $4 per month. And there's also a 30-day money-back guarantee if you're not satisfied. Again, visit nordvpn.com slash mrcreaves for 66% off the two-year plan plus one month for free. Thanks again to NordVPN for sponsoring today's episode. We've just discovered a terrifying new virus. God help us. Written by Mr. Outlaw. Alright, long story short. My name is Cam and I'm a virologist. If you've never heard of that title, it's just a person who studies and researches viruses and any biological agents resembling them. It's a decent job, pays well and keeps me interested. I've never really thought about pursuing anything else. That was until last night. We've discovered something very bad. I was part of a five-person team in a small lab situated up in the mountains of a Western European country. I'm not going to give too many specifics here. The project was spearheaded by an exceptional microbiologist. Let's call him Hathaway. Now, Hathaway has been on vacation for a while in South America. Everybody who worked closely with him or knew him well thought this was incredibly strange. I mean, the guy never took a break. However, it all made sense when he came back. He looked like absolute crap. There were heavy bags under his eyes and scratches all over his face. He was jittery as all hell and could barely string together a coherent sentence. As we would learn later, he was never actually on vacation. I guess you could say that it was more like a business trip of sorts. Apparently, he had been in contact with a colleague of his based in Chile. 
He had been informing Halfway about uh, some peculiar events occurring in a small village near the coast. Something to do with a potential unknown disease. These specifics remained a mystery to us at the time. All Hathaway said was that it was worth looking into. What worried a lot of us were the cuts on his face and forearms. When asked about it, he simply claimed that he had fallen down a few times while hiking. Without knowing what else to believe, we just bought it. And besides, the prospect of studying a new virus was incredibly intriguing. This might have been something big. We got to work right away, as the five of us, me, Hathaway, Jake, Beth, and Colin, congregated in the main lab. Hathaway carried in what appeared to be a fortified glass tank containing a single bird. I think it was an Andean condor, native to Chile. I'll be honest, I was a bit worried at this point. We didn't even bother asking how we got it past border security. Tell me this isn't some derivative of the bird flu, Jake asked. No, Hathaway responded. I, uh, I have no idea what it is exactly. We all collectively raised our eyebrows at this. You see, it's definitely not airborne. You can also touch the bird as much as you like. Nothing will happen to you. It's transmitted some other way. And that's when I noticed that the bird was actually blindfolded. I don't know why I had an earlier, why nobody had even pointed it out. I guess my subconscious wasn't expecting such a bizarre sight. Don't tell me it has something to do with that, I asked, pointing to where its eyes should have been. Everybody else seemed to catch on to the strange detail. Hathaway stayed quiet for a second. Staying at the ground before finally nodding. Are you kidding me? Jake inquired. How does that work? Wait, what the heck's even wrong with the bird? I found myself blurting out. Although it was a fair question. Upon initial glance at it, nothing at all seemed to be off. The only somewhat strange thing was that it hadn't moved much. Hathaway sighed. Not at first, right? He dug around in his bag and pulled out another, smaller tank. It was filled with beetles. We'll do a demonstration here. He walked over to the bird tank and dumped all of the beetles in. Jesus Christ. I heard someone mutter from behind me. Once Hathaway was finished, he turned back to us. His expression at the time was dead serious. In the gravest tone that I had ever heard come from him, he spoke to us. I'm about to take the blindfold off the bird. Whatever you do, don't look at it. In fact, just leave the room. I'll tell you when you can come back. I think that we all hesitated for just a second when he said that. What the heck was going on? Eventually, we all just did as we were told. We stood out in the hall in absolute silence for maybe about three minutes. At that time, I couldn't quite understand why it took so long for him to take a dang blindfold off. But then the noises started. I, I can't even find a way to describe them. 
They couldn't have come from a bird, that's for sure. Or at least, they shouldn't have. If anything, it was like a screech, except extremely deep and guttural, and also was somehow discombobulated. A few seconds later, we heard Hathaway screaming expletives. It sounded like he was in pain. We stood there frozen, not knowing at all what to do. Eventually, we were called back in. Hesitantly, I went first. As soon as I stepped in there, I saw Hathaway disinfecting his hand, which was now cut open. As he started wrapping it up, I turned my attention to the bird. It looked the same as it was before. The only difference was that it was covered in beetle guts, and so were the glass walls of the tank. After we had all settled down from the initial shock, Hathaway tried to explain what just happened. Here's what I think, somehow. The virus is transferred upon direct eye contact with an infected specimen. What the heck? Jake interjected. No, no, screw that. It makes absolutely no sense. You think I don't know that? Hathaway interrupted back. Just listen, alright? Anyways, there aren't any immediate indications when something's been infected. They'll act exactly the same as they were before. At least at first. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when they start changing. I'd say maybe three hours tops. But once they do, you notice. The best thing you can do is blindfold them. That way you can't get infected. And the subject loses all of its symptoms. Well, I suppose that the best thing to do is to actually blind them, but... I had to demonstrate first. Now, we just have to figure out what the heck's actually going on. After that brief and albeit somewhat unsatisfying explanation, we went to work. But everything only kept getting stranger. After we had blinded and killed the bird, Hathaway instructed us to start dissecting the brain. At first, we were tentative. After witnessing what had just happened, we were as scared as hell of contracting whatever the heck it was that the bird had. Besides, we weren't even trained surgeons. However, Hathaway insisted that the only way this virus could be transmitted was by eye contact. As strange as this all was, we just went along with it. His reasoning for dissecting the brain first was that he had made the assumption that this virus must be affecting the host on a mainly psychological basis. As it turns out, he was right. It's a parasite, Beth asked, looking mortified. Hathaway shook his head, looking incredibly confused. No, it shouldn't be. The bird's been alive for weeks after infection. I see no signs of physical deterioration, no nutrient deficiencies, none of that. We were all absolutely baffled at this point. What kind of virus is large enough to be visible? We just stared at it, not knowing what to do. And out of nowhere, the brain started bulging outwards. Hathaway's face dropped. It must know that the host is dead. It's trying to come out. Thinking quickly, I went and grabbed a nearby beaker. 
I managed to trap the thing just as it burrowed its way out. I really didn't know what to expect at that point, but it didn't stop me from being completely surprised at the appearance of the thing. It looked absolutely alien. It nearly resembled a bacterial phage, except for the fact that it seemed to have tiny suction cups covering it. The head also appeared to be partially mechanical, with tubes protruding out and connecting to the legs. It was about the size of a black widow spider. I heard a cacophony of screams ring throughout the room, while Hathaway shouted at me not to let it out. As everything started settling down, we managed to transport it into another glass tank, this time smaller and more fortified. We spent the next 12 hours observing and analyzing it. The conclusion that we came to, it made no sense. We couldn't classify it nor make sense of its various parts. Heck, the thing was too huge to be any kind of pathogen. We would have written it off as some kind of undiscovered jungle creature, but the fact remained that it seemed to affect the behaviors of its host organisms. Eventually, we decided to just secure and leave it, planning to continue our research the next day, even though that was unlikely to yield any solid results. Most of us even considered just turning it over to the government. We sure as heck didn't know what to do with it. However, Hathaway declined that proposition. We'll figure out what it is, he claimed, sounding somewhat unconfident. This is big, all right. I'm not letting it go just yet. Tired and not wanting to get into an argument, we all decided to head off to our separate temporary dorms in order to get some rest. What a big mistake that was. We should have burned that thing right then and there. I remember lying in bed that night when a troubling thought creeped into my head. If the way that this virus was transmitted was by making eye contact with an infected organism, then wouldn't looking directly at the virus itself cause something similar to happen? How would that even work? Did it replicate through our thoughts? Or did it need to control optical nerves in order to spread? How could that even make sense? But then again, none of this really did. However, I did recall Hathaway claiming that symptoms would surface three hours tops after the initial infection, and it had been a lot longer than that. Being somewhat reassured, I passed out. I woke up about four hours later. I groggily rubbed my eyes, wondering what could have taken me out of my slumber. I'm usually a very deep sleeper. As I woke back into reality, I heard it. Somebody was mumbling down the hallway. It sounded like Jake. I got up and opened my door, planning to confront him. I stepped out and saw his silhouette, shrouded in darkness and about 20 meters away. His back was turned to me, so I prepared to call out. And that's when I felt somebody cover my mouth and pull me into an adjacent hallway. Reeling at the initial shock, I looked behind me and realized that it was Hathaway. I was about to shout at him once he let me go, but he motioned for me to be quiet. I also saw the desperation in his eyes. I stayed silent as he gestured me back towards the lab, 
I realized that we were screwed as soon as I saw what had happened. The reinforced glass tank where we had been holding the virus was empty. Whatever this thing was, it was out. Don't look into his eyes, Hathaway told me in reference to Jake. We weren't careful enough. It must have infected him. Did he open the tank? I asked him. He shook his head. No, no way. You need a password for it. It's not even written down anywhere. Only I know it. I looked back at the tank in abject confusion. There weren't any cracks on it or anything. There is no feasible way out. Then how the heck? I began to ask him, but he cut me off. Look, I don't know. Maybe there's a lot more about this thing that we can't understand. He sighed, throwing his hands behind his head. My mind started racing. If this virus or whatever it was could have escaped at any time, then why didn't it make a move earlier? This thing must have been smarter than we had anticipated. I guess it somehow knew that it had a better chance of escaping when nobody was monitoring it. But how did it get out? My thoughts were interrupted when we heard a knocking coming from outside the lab door. Hello? A voice called out. It was Colin. I got up to open the door, but Hathaway pulled me back down. What the heck? I barked at him. Let him in before he sees Jake. What if he already has? Hathaway responded. And then I thought about it. It takes around three hours for these symptoms to manifest. So even if he's been infected, he wouldn't know it yet. Um, the heck are you guys doing in there? I can hear you let me in. Jake's being really, really weird. It's actually kind of scary. Weird how? Hathaway asked. Well, he woke me up when he walked past my door. Actually, I think he was standing right outside. Yeah, he was mumbling something. I opened the door and asked him what the heck he was doing. It was dark, but I could tell that he was just staring at me. And then he started rambling. It was absolute nonsense. He was stringing words together, but none of it made any sense. After a while, if I'm not responding to a word that I said, I gave up and walked past him. That was like five minutes ago. Look, are you guys going to come out or what? What are we supposed to do? Hathaway and I exchanged worried glances. If Jake really was infected, then so was Colin. We didn't move. For Pete's sake, what are you doing? Colin went on, sounding more agitated now. Is there a reason you won't let me in? That was followed by silence. A few seconds later, we heard him mumbling something. Crap. Tell me that Jake wasn't infected. I guess our silence was enough of an answer. No, no way. So what happens next? Hathaway, what am I supposed to do then? Hathaway just sighed and shook his head. I don't know. I'm sorry. We heard him shout some more expletives before walking away fuming. We sat there for a while after that, having no idea what to do. Is there an emergency escaping here? I asked him. No, but it wouldn't matter anyways. We can't let those guys out of here. I've yet to see what effects it has on a human, but it can't be anything good. And don't even ask me about a cure. I don't know. 
So what are you saying? I asked him, dreading the answer. Best case scenario is that we blindfold and restrain them before they show any signs of aggression. He sighed, looking out at the ground before continuing. And then we hand them over to someone else. Somebody who can deal with this. We sure as hell can't. I know who you meant by that. I guess he just didn't want to admit it. Hathaway pulled out two rolls of duct tape as well as what appeared to be two trank guns. I didn't bother asking why he had them. Slowly and quietly, we opened the door and walked out into the hallway. The lights above were dim, so we could see, but not that well. I was terrified at this point. I kept thinking about that bird. I didn't see what I actually did, but the result spoke volumes. I did not want to witness how that translated over to humans. We walked down various corridors for about five minutes before. We heard a soft voice to the hallway left of us. It was Jake. This was roughly what he was saying. In time? Where in time? It doesn't make sense. I know that it doesn't. So what do I do? I can't stay like this. Obviously that made no sense. What was even weirder was his tone. It wasn't devoid of emotion, in fact, it was quite the opposite. He sounded genuinely confused and afraid. Barely making any sound, Hathaway peeked past the corner. His vision aimed at the floor, presumably trying to avoid eye contact. However, as soon as he did this, he screamed and jumped backwards. I asked him what he had seen, but he wouldn't turn to face me. A second later, I found out why. I saw him. I saw his face. When I peered over, he was lying on the floor, staring right at me. No. I stumbled backwards, horrified at this sudden revelation. Don't worry, he told me. I'll take care of Jake, and then I'll take care of myself. Just go find Colin and be more careful than I was. Without needing further conviction, I turned and ran the other way. As I did, I heard the sounds of a struggle and Hathaway screaming out in pain behind me. There was also laughter for some reason. Hysterical, deranged laughter. It sounded nothing like Jake. I ran across corridors, making sure to only look to the walls, so that I could just see in front of me from my peripherals. I nearly jumped out of my skin when I heard somebody call out from behind me. It was Beth this time. I had nearly forgotten about her in all the panic. However, I wasn't taking any rest. I raised the Trank pistol towards her in general direction. What's going on? She asked, sounding terrified. I responded curtly and directly. Have you looked into anybody's eyes since we left the lab? She let out a near whimper. No, no, why? Oh, oh God, don't tell me. Yeah, it's out, I told her still aiming the weapon at her. Well, I haven't made eye contact with Colin, alright? Now, I suppose that most people would have let up in this situation. She obviously wasn't infected, right? But there was something wrong with what she just said. Why did she mention Colin specifically? Why didn't she just say that she hadn't made eye contact with anybody? And in addition to that, something about her tone was off. It was like a bad actor trying to deliver a line. I didn't know how to react, so I just froze there. 
Eventually, Beth started speaking again. Is that a Trank gun? Because that won't do anything. And before I could even react, she lunged at me. I closed my eyes as I felt her nails dig into my skin, and then into my face. She was trying to forcefully pry open my eyes. Luckily, I had 90 pounds on her, so I managed to throw her off me. This whole time that she was attacking me, she was letting out some kind of extremely deep, throaty chuckle, as opposed to Jake's boisterous, hysterical one. Beth got back up in an instant and lunged at me again. This time, I managed to put her into a chokehold. However, she wouldn't go unconscious. I must have held her there for about three minutes, but her relentless scratching eventually made it a task too difficult. I pushed her away and started running. As I bolted out of there, I could hear her coming after me, still letting out that disturbing chuckle. The weirdest part was that I could almost hear her palms hitting the floor. Was she crawling? I didn't try and find out. I ducked into an adjacent lab and locked the door behind me. I heard a decline at it from outside, so I just lied down on the floor for a while in order to catch my breath. God, she was still laughing. What the heck was going on? Wait a minute, I thought. That laughing was too loud. It sounded like it was coming from in the room. Hesitantly, I checked the door. I nearly had a heart attack at what I saw. She was halfway through the door, but it was still closed. I could see her arms and face poking through the metal. Safe to say, I left immediately. Thankfully, there were two doors in the room, so I ran out into the adjacent hallway. I just wanted to get out of there. I started running frantically, trying to search for an exit or a window or anything. At that point, I was quite disoriented. I couldn't place where I was in the building. I still remembered to stay cautious, however. My heart nearly leapt out of my chest when I saw an illuminated exit sign. I followed it and was finally led to the door that I entered through. However, Hathaway was blocking the entrance. He was hunched over, covering his eyes with his hands, and they were dripping blood. You know, I, I just feel weird right now. Not like myself, you know. I heard him mutter out. I tried thinking about it. Had it been three hours since our encounter with Jake? Surely it hadn't been. I guess he eventually heard me because he shifted himself towards my direction. Cam, is that... is that you? He spoke in a soft but somewhat threatening tone. I don't know what happened. I tried killing Jake, but he just wouldn't die. I think it's coming now. I feel weird. What's happening to me? Can you tell me, Cam? Right after he said that, a loud roar emanated from some corridor behind me. It was followed by what sounded like rapid crawling towards our direction. Oh, don't worry about me, Cam. I always make it. Hathaway kept going. I always make it. I won't make it. He then fell to his knees, sobbing hysterically. I took the chance and I bolted out the front door. As soon as I got out, I grabbed a bundle of nearby sticks and jammed the entrance. I'm pretty sure that it won't last long, but 
It was the best that I could do. I got into my car and sped down the mountain trail, back out onto the highway. I got home about 30 minutes ago and I have no idea what to do. Should I call the police? Are they even going to listen to me? What about the FBI? Surely that's the best option here. I'll probably end up doing that soon. That virus cannot spread more than it already has. God, when I saw Beth's face coming through the metal door, I don't think I can ever forget that. And her eyes. They look like something straight out of hell. Her pupils were replaced by what looked like this dark purple vortex. It was all so messed up. Wait. I made eye contact with her, didn't I? No. I went to a school for monsters. Rules help me stay alive. Written by Me Like Food 10. My name is Tyson. I'm a former student of Hawkins High School for Boys. From day one, a lot of us knew something was off. We just weren't able to put our finger on it. My friend, Aaron, said, It feels like a, a murderer is here. Don't know why. But if I remember correctly from Friday the 13th, someone died and haunted the grounds. Maybe that's what's happening here. Boy, I wish that was true. I hope that he was joking. That this was a perfectly fine school. But after a few of my friends went missing... The school had cracked down hard to keep us safe by writing rules. We were given a paper with a set rules on them. Rule number one. If you see a custodian with the name tag of Bob, do not interact with him. He might try to interact with you. But don't. We never have had a staff member named Bob. Rule number two. Never look at the riverbank between the times of 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. You won't die, but you will wish you did. Rule number three. If you open your locker and see a decapitated head. Shut the locker and go to class. Do not touch the head or anything in the locker. Rule number four. Do not open the doors at the end of the lunchroom. Rule number five. If you see someone and they have no head. Turn around and turn back. It will revert back to normal. Do not do a prolonged stare. 
Rule number six. If lights start to flicker, hide under a table until they return to normal. This rule is very important. Rule number seven. The third floor may appear to have two sets of stairs. Always take the stairs on the left. If you don't, you will be stuck on the fourth floor for the rest of your life. Rule number eight. You might see drunken humans near the forest. If they start chasing you, ignore them. We don't know whether or not they are real. It is best not to find out. Being someone who doesn't believe in ghosts, I initially disregarded these rules. Really, I never believed them. Until it happened. One day, I opened my locker and I saw the head. I wanted to touch it. I wanted to so badly. But I didn't. I slammed my locker and I went to class. That day, an announcement came on over the speaker. Students of Hawkins High School, there has been an emergency. Rule number eight has been broken. Said student interacted with the figures and faced a fate worse than death. Before that announcement, we started with 50 students. Before Thanksgiving, it hit a very low total of 13. I remembered the rules, and I marked how many students died not following a rule. I also put down the numbers of how many survivors of each. Rule number one. Seven deaths, zero survivors. Rule number two. Three deaths, four survivors. Rule number three. One death, zero survivors. Rule number four. Three deaths, three survivors. Rule number five. Eight deaths, six survivors. Rule number six. Five deaths, one survivor. Rule number seven. Zero deaths, three missing. Rule number eight. Seven deaths, two survivors. Those survivors were unrecognizable to the point that they were on life support for the rest of their time alive. There were multiple students who broke more than one rule and lived. Some did it and died. I broke one rule. Rule number six. I was looking for some kind of pattern. Something that might be able to tell me what actually was going on. Why so many of my peers were dying. And then it hit me like a truck. 
the death of a teacher, possibly. Hey, Aaron, what did you see when you broke rule number two? I asked, hoping for an answer. He turned as white as a jar of mayonnaise. He started to say something, but turned back around. He put his hands over his head. Was it that scary? Scary enough that Aaron, a horror enthusiast, was scared out of his mind from it. He broke down in tears. The teacher comforted him and glided him. How was I supposed to know how bad it was? I mentioned that, but I was sent to the principal's office. And then I saw him. Bob, the custodian. He looked up at me and said, Hey, you know where the third floor is? I ignored him and kept going forward. I heard a groan and the mop. Once I got to the office, I saw the lights starting to flicker. There was a table nearby with a few boxes underneath. It happened. It was bad. Creatures came down from the ceiling. Creatures I can't put my finger on. Think of a pitch black entity with huge claws and a mouth. It screeched and tore through the room, ignoring the tables. A few minutes later, it was gone. I heard cries and sobs from the principal's office. I went in there and there was no head. I turned away and blinked, and then turned back. It was back to normal. I had encountered three rolls on my way down. Three. He was there, crying. Blood was everywhere. The vice principal's head lay there, on the ground. Nothing else in sight. His eyes, open in terror. His mouth, shocked. He looked up, saw me, and cleared up. I could see his urge to cry again. What happened? He said, voice breaking. I, I, I asked a friend what happened when he broke rule number two. And the teacher made me come here. I didn't know it would be that bad. I responded, still confused. He handed me a note. Meet me here at midnight sharp. No earlier, no later. Set your phone alarm. The minute that it vibrates, yell out, I'm here. I will be there. That is how I will know it is you. I nodded and laughed. When I got back, two more students were missing. There are two more deaths for rule number six. I remain to be the only person to not hide and live. 
Aaron was there. He was mortified. A long claw mark set itself upon his chest and his arm. I didn't know a human had that much blood. There is another survivor to number six. The teacher knew the look on my face. A look that said, I know what happened. But what really happened? He yelled, Get out. Get the heck out of my classroom. And then the Bob guy appeared in the room. Way in the back corner. The teacher said to him, Get this kid out. He caught himself. His face filled with horror. The custodian attacked him faster than some of the kids could scream. One student lost their life when they tried to intervene. We are all going to die here in this horrible place. I asked Aaron, Hey, we need to get out of this place. He agreed. Midnight tomorrow. Meet me outside of the doors, he responded. I have to escape. And I have a plan. At exactly midnight, I met with the principal. 24 hours until they leave. The principal whispered, When you are ready, turn around. Do not scream. That's how people die. I turned and saw the fear of my life. I swear my heart jumped out of my chest. I felt the fear around my entire body. I can feel the fear radiating off of me. If you want to know, I wish I can describe it, but it isn't easy. It was a humanoid figure, I think. Four legs with deformed limbs, head stretched out heightwise, four eyes, one set on the top of the head, and the other at the bottom of the face. It was eating what looked like a body. Two small holes for a nose, a mouth filled with hundreds of sharp and long teeth, drool dripping from its mouth, a color that I cannot describe. I blacked out. I woke up later that day with a splitting headache. This was in the principal's office, he said. I had a feeling this would happen. And then I blacked out again. I woke up again later that day, sitting in class. The teacher said, Why did you do what you did last night? You could have lost your life. Crap. I thought that was all the dream. Unfortunately not. That image is now burnt in my head. I couldn't try and get the image of that thing out of my head. I need to get out of here. That night, I packed up my stuff and I did just that. At exactly 11 at night, I woke up. My alarm clock was beeping. I had to unplug it and turn it off before someone heard me. I grabbed my shoes and my coat. I didn't need much. Going down these stairs were easy. Rules 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 cannot be broken. The lake is easy to look away from. 
that I won't need the locker. I'm leaving from the front doors. Nobody to see or to talk to. No lights. That night, though, I saw Bob, the custodian. He was mopping. Get back to your room. Do you want me to call security? I ignored him. But I took a glance at his face, and I really wish I didn't. He started transforming into this creature. He got taller, and his fingers grew into claws. His arms got longer. And then he let out a loud screech. I ran as fast as I could and went out at the front doors. Bob hit his head on the door frame and he fell. He didn't move or get back up. The time was now 11.55. Did 55 minutes really pass that quickly? I saw Aaron facing me. He shot his hand up and I ran to him. So, what's your plan? He asked. 20 foot tall wire fence, not electric. It'll take a few hours, but we can dig out. I responded, eyeing the shovels near the bike racks. Alright, grab a shovel. How wide should it be? He replied, alert for staff members. I calculated how wide and deep it should be to fit one of us with room to spare. About two feet and a foot deep. Anything less and we won't have room. You can get in, but not out. I said, being serious. We started digging. I checked my phone. 6.30am. 30 minutes until the teachers started arriving. I crawled through and looked back. The school looked abandoned. Aaron followed me. The outside looked different than it did when we left. Everything felt more alive. Aaron was behind me, pumping his fist in the air. We survived for now. Hi everyone, I hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. I just wanted to take a brief minute to talk about one of today's sponsors, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is professional counseling done safely and securely online. Whatever you might be dealing with, BetterHelp provides a broad range of counseling expertise that you might not find through traditional therapy. Mental health is something I personally have been putting a lot more focus into. Dealing with the daily struggles of life along with everything else going on in the world, it can become very stressful and mentally draining. Having someone to talk to and explain how you're feeling, it's been really nice and has really improved my overall outlook. Regardless of when I feel like chatting, professional therapists from BetterHelp are available 24-7 and provide timely and highly thoughtful responses that help answer whatever questions I might be having. I highly recommend checking out BetterHelp. It's really helped me and I think it can do the same for you. Get started today by visiting betterhelp.com slash mrcreeps to get 10% off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Again, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Creepscast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash mrcreeps. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode.
There is life on Mars. I think we just woke it up. Written by J. Group. The frigid, windswept surface of Mars has a thin atmosphere. It is constantly bombarded with deadly radiation from above. The air is toxic. The soil is toxic. And there's little benefit in setting up a traditional base camp there, as had been done on the moon. For us to survive more than a few years on our top-secret advanced scouting mission, we had to build down, not up. And so, we made our base below ground. Unfortunately for us, there was something else down there with us, in the caverns below the surface. Something that had been lying dormant and forgotten in the darkness. And we woke it up. Kate was swinging her pickaxe against the wall, breaking off chunks of loose rock. The ceaseless ringing sound of metal on stone was echoing and constant in the dim space. Once upon a time, I had found it annoying, but I was so used to it now that it didn't even register. It helped that on Mars, sound didn't work quite the same. Things were duller, quieter there. The headlamps on either side of my helmet illuminated a wide region in front of me as I worked, shoveling rocks into a wheelbarrow. Everything else was blanketed in darkness. Even on the surface light was only a third of what it would be on Earth. Underground, the darkness was actually oppressive. It felt like you were drowning in it. Suddenly, I heard a noise like the wall had just caved in behind me where she was standing. A loud showering of rocks falling over suddenly, and I wheeled around to see Kate was gone. Just gone. I moved as quickly as I could in that direction, maneuvering in the low gravity with my bulky suit encumbering every step. Running over to where she had been, I called for help, asking the others in the main living quarters to come quickly. There is a hole in the rock where Kate had been. When I finally got close enough to see what had happened, I looked through the gap and saw a vast and dark cavernous space behind the rock wall. My headlamp shone through, and I looked down to see Kate struggling on the treacherous terrain where she had fallen. She had slid a little ways down a steep hill made of crumbling dirt and rock. The loose ground was slipping beneath her feet as she attempted desperately to gain purchase. I need some help, she cried, trying and failing to find her footing. The angle was so steep, she was clearly struggling, trying not to show the terror on her face. I got you, Kate, I tried, my words sounding false to my own ears. Just hang on. But I saw that she couldn't hang on. She was being swallowed up by the blackness below, more and more by the second. She was almost ten feet down the slope now, and too far for me to grab her. Then fifteen feet, then twenty. Bring ropes and climbing equipment. I called to the others in the habitation unit. Double time, guys. Hurry. Kate's in trouble. 
They responded affirmative on the radio. I watched horrified as she slid further and further down into the darkness below. Hang on, Kate. Now, guys. We need you out here now. Behind her, I could see there was a huge underground cavern. My lamp could not illuminate far enough to see the floor or the other end of it. The dark space had to be massive, considering the NASA headlamps were top of the line. The high-powered beam of light cut through the darkness for a ways and then it was swallowed up. When I looked down again, Kate was gone. She didn't respond on her radio either. The sound of her impact to the floor below did not come back up to me, and I imagined her falling slowly in the low gravity at first, her descent quickly increasing, faster and faster until she reached a deadly velocity, and then it wouldn't matter anymore how forgiving the gravity was. But the sound of her impact never came. Wei and Reed ran out of the airlock with ropes in hand, looking at me with concern. I waved them over and pointed down into the blackness below. This section is hollow. She broke right through with the pickaxe. She fell in and couldn't climb back up. It's all crumbling rock, so I think she must have slid right down. But how far, I'm not sure. Captain Reed seemed to consider the options. Time was of the utmost importance. If she was still alive down there, her air supply would be limited. We all stared through the hole into the blackness and looked up to see the roof of the cavern far above. It was very odd, since our bunker was next to a large vertical rock face that we had always assumed was sturdy and solid. Now we realized the giant mountain of stone right behind our base was hollow, like the fossilized skull of an ancient colossus. It seemed unnatural to my eyes, but I'm no geologist. Wei quickly went in to call back to base as I looked down helplessly into the dark abyss of the cavern. Hello, Nathan, are you? The radio crackled with static, but I could hear her voice in my helmet. Kate, are you okay? Can you hear me? There was nothing for a few moments and then I heard the static crackle again. Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear- I waited, but there was only silence once again. You're cutting out. How far down are you? We can lower a rope. There is something down here, Nathan. I can't explain it, but- pool of water that broke my fall. Kate, did you say water? Nothing after that again for a few minutes, despite trying again multiple times. We all stared at each other, dumbfounded. The average temperature on the surface of Mars is approximately negative 46 degrees Celsius. It was much colder than that in the caverns where we were located away from the sun's warming rays. Far too cold for liquid water. We were protected from the deadly radiation present on the surface, though and that was the major benefit of being below ground. She must have a concussion or a head injury. Someone's going to have to go down there, I think. I'll go. 
I volunteered immediately. Putting on the climbing harness, I tried to put one leg at a time through the loops of woven fabric, the way that I had done a thousand times, but still, I found myself struggling. My hands were shaking and I couldn't get my fingers to work properly. Finally, I got the dang thing on and I attached the other clips and ropes and equipment to my suit. Reed handed me two climbing axes as well, just in case. I lowered myself slowly over the side of the steep cliff edge, and I made my way down. The darkness surrounded me on all sides, as I went deeper and deeper down, feeling suffocated by blackness. I had to remind myself to breathe. It felt like I was descending downwards forever, as the light above got dimmer and eventually disappeared entirely. The walls looked yellow and strange, veiny and organic when I shone my light on them. But I didn't have time to stop and look. I just assumed it was an unusual type of rock formation. As I dropped on further, my head began to feel light. My vision suddenly blurred for a moment and I had trouble seeing. And then it cleared again and my ears began to ring painfully. I didn't understand what was happening, and I started to hear voices whispering in my ears instead of ringing, until it seemed like they were right inside my mind speaking to me, but in a tongue that I did not understand, and that was not human. No, that can't be right. Finally, Kate's headlights became visible. I saw she was standing down below and was touching the surface of the rock wall. But it was not a rock wall. I realized with dawning apprehension. The walls were moving and shifting. They were covered in yellow web-like formations that I saw were everywhere. All over the floors and walls and ceiling of this unnatural chamber. So close to me I could examine them. As I finished dropping down to the floor below. The yellow webs looked familiar for some reason, and it took me a few moments to realize why. The yellow, web-like formations were almost identical to a slime mold, one of the most curious and interesting life forms on planet Earth. Of course, not known to exist on Mars. Coincidentally, I knew a thing or two about the stuff. A slime mold is not a fungus. It is not an animal or a plant. It is separate from everything else on the tree of life. Almost as if it has its own tree of life. Despite the fact that it grows to be very large, up to several feet in diameter in my experience but nothing like this, it is a single-celled organism, except with millions of nuclei. And it is potentially capable of some form of intelligence. In labs, they have found that slime mold can solve mazes, for instance. And they grow extremely quickly. They can expand and contract like the muscles in our own bodies, using a vaguely similar mechanism. Thinking about these things in the back of my mind, I couldn't help but feel afraid as my feet touched the stone floor and I saw the yellow slime was on me immediately, quickly growing and expanding onto my boots, 
moving much faster than anything seen on Earth. I called out over the radio to Kate once again. She was standing right in front of me, but did not turn around. I began to approach her and looked down to see the strands of yellow webbing sticking and stretching from the bottom of my feet. It was like walking across a movie theater floor covered in gum, each step difficult and taxing. Finally, I reached her and put my hand on her shoulder. She spun around quickly and I saw her eyes were surprised and blinking as if I had just woken her up from sleep. Kate, can you hear me? Oh, Nathan, hi. There was a crack in the glass of her helmet and some of the yellow slime mold was oozing around it. With dawning horror, I realized that it was actually inside of her helmet, moving around and exploring the space. Some was on her neck as well as in her hair, and I nearly gagged with unexplainable revulsion at the sight of it on her. Kate, you have a breach in your suit. We need to get you back to the hab. We can't go yet, Nathan. Look at all this. She was speaking softly as if she was sleepwalking. Her voice a lilting lullaby. Everything she said in a sing-song tune. Quietly and at a whisper. I wanted to ask her why she was talking like that. Why she wasn't listening to common sense. But more than anything, I just wanted to get away. I know that must sound awful, but part of me wanted desperately more than anything just to get the heck away from her and away from that yellow slime mold looking stuff that didn't belong here. Kate, we have to go, please. Come on. They're talking to me, Nathan. Do you hear them too? If you listen closely, you can almost make out the words. I'm even starting to understand them, Nathan. I tried to grab her arm, and she pushed me away, turning her face to look at me angrily as she did so. Don't touch me! Turning around, I saw the pool of water that she had described falling into. It was not water at all, but a large deposit of the yellow slime mold in a large crater nearby, bubbling and moving around. Whipping tendrils stuck out from it curiously and darted around, seeming to inspect the air. Bring me back up, I said over the radio. Kate's refusing assistance. There's some strange organism growing down here and she's, um, not done with it yet. Or, it's not done with her. They didn't seem to hear me over the radio, so... I simply pulled twice on the rope and they began to reel me back in. It didn't feel right, leaving Kate down there, but I told myself I didn't have a choice. We would have to regroup and come up with a plan. Maybe she would listen to Reed if he went down and ordered her to return. The darkness swallowed her up beneath me and I looked down at my boots in dismay to see that the yellow web slime mold was hanging onto me still wriggling and squirming and exploring my legs. It appeared to be searching desperately for a way into my suit. Bewildered and confused, my mind grappled with a hundred different scenarios, 
still in shock over what we had just discovered. There was life on Mars. Disgusting, slimy, potentially telepathic life. But still, for the first time in history, it had just been irrefutably proven beyond any doubt. I had just witnessed a never-seen-before breed of what I assumed was slime mold growing in the depths of the cavern. Somehow, it was still alive and thriving, despite extreme temperatures and an absence of any known food supply. The whole thing existed beyond science and logic, and yet it was there. My crew wouldn't believe me, I thought to myself, if not for the remnants of it clinging desperately to my boots. They hauled me up through the opening in the rock and immediately began to ask why Kate was not with me. She refused to come back up. There's something down there, some kind of organism. This stuff, I said, pointing at my boots. What the heck is that? Wei exclaimed. She was normally calm and composed, but now she was backing away, stumbling over rocks and shaking. I can hear it in my head. Reed began to look concerned as well, and I remembered how something similar had happened to me as I descended down into the cavern. I had nearly dismissed the voices in my head, as my imagination and fear until Kate confirmed she heard them too. Oh, yeah, that. Just wait, it'll pass, I said, hoping it would as it had for me. After a few long moments, it did. What the heck are we dealing with? Reed asked. I only wish that I could give him an answer. The three of us went back inside for a brief rest and to regroup. Wei went straight to her lab with an odd look on her face, saying she would examine the slime mold and try to give us some answers. She would also communicate with home base from there and explain the newest developments, since she had an uplink in her lab. Reed and I stood pacing in the habitation unit's kitchen and dining area, debating what the heck we were going to do. And Kate had refused to come back up with me, and I told him that she didn't seem to be herself. It was like the slime mold stuff was telling her to stay there. I didn't understand it, but there it was. We can't convince her to come upright, which leaves us exactly one option as far as I'm concerned. We hitch a rope to her suit and drag her back up here. I don't like it, but it's what we've got to do. After a bit more discussion, the two of us decided I would go down again while Reed stayed up top, since he was the strongest. It was easy enough to pull the person up in the low gravity, but two was another story altogether. If necessary, I told him that I would wait down below while he pulled Kate up and then he could send the rope back down again afterwards. Going down into the darkness again was even more terrifying than the first time. Even though I knew slightly what to expect, the whole thing was going wrong. I could tell already when I heard Wei's voice speaking over the radio. She was speaking in a whispering lullaby tone, the same as Kate. We don't need to bring her back up here, Captain Reed. She said, tell Nathan to come back up. I don't understand. Can you repeat, Wei? She must stay down below. 
Mother is hungry and must eat. Mother must become one. I didn't like the sounds of that one bit. Reed, you need to bring me back up. Way is compromised. She's talking like that thing is controlling her. Like it was controlling Kate. She's coming out here, Nathan. She's got a knife. God, get back, get back. Stop, please, Way, listen to me. He cut out abruptly. The rope that I was holding suddenly began to drop in sickening lurches. I fell ten feet and then twenty, feeling sick as I bounced back up with the sudden tension. Gravity pulled me back down and I held onto the rope desperately, feeling that I was about to die for certain. Beneath me, the ground came into view, and I saw Kate's light now shining dimly from the wall, but I did not see her. The rope dropped again as Reed was attacked by the thing above. The thing that had once been way now clearly trying to kill him, judging by these sounds of it, and judging by how he was holding the rope, or not holding it. This time, I fell all the way to the floor below, slowly at first, and then faster and faster as the ground sped towards me. I landed awkwardly, twisting my ankle, and called out in pain. Looking over my shoulder, I saw the rope was still there, hanging from the cliff above. So Reed was still up there, hanging on for dear life, and fighting off where whatever she had become. I only hoped that he was alright. And then I turned around and saw Kate, or what was left of her. She was enveloped by the wall that she had been standing in front of when I left her. Her face stared out at me, and I saw the yellow-webbed slime was now covering her eyes and nose. It was in her ears, and worst of all, it went into her mouth, like an intubation device going down her throat. Blackish yellow veins lined her face and neck, and her entire spacesuit was wrapped in sticky yellow-webbed slime, which held her fastened tightly to the wall. And despite my terror, I found myself stepping forward, wanting to help her still, somehow wanting to do the right thing and get her out of there. If only I could clip the rope to her suit. And at that thought, the webbing seemed to unravel and released her, like a Venus flytrap letting go of its prey, like a flower opening in bloom. Though her face was covered in yellow slime, she walked towards me as if she could see me plainly through it. The oozing webs stretched out behind her as she came at me. And that's when I realized the voice in my head telling me to stay and try to save her was not my own. It was a foreign voice speaking in a close approximation of my own thoughts, telling me not to worry, telling me to remain calm, to stay, to become one. I ran instead. The rope was still there, and that was enough for me. I grabbed onto it and began to climb, my feet walking up the side of the steep, vertical cliff as quickly as I could. I didn't dare to look back, but knew that Kate was just behind me. Not Kate, but what was left of her. Struggling up the sheer 90-degree slope, I found myself tiring more and more. 
The wall seemed as if it was grabbing out of my feet and wrapping them up in webs with every step that I took, getting stronger and pulling me harder all the time. The strands of yellow slime grabbed on and refused to let go, snapping in half only with great effort on my part. I pulled myself up the rope and walked through the living muck as it tried tenaciously to hold on to me. All the while as I walked up the wall, I heard whispering in my mind, louder and louder now. Every so often, I would find my hands beginning to let go of the rope, without my conscious effort on my part, and I had to fight off the voices and tell myself to hang on. Even though they spoke in a language unknown to me, it seemed not to matter. As their will was made known to my mind, and I had to fight from bowing to its growing power. Finally, I reached the top and I pulled myself back into the light. The habitation unit was visible just ahead, and I saw that the rope was tied off haphazardly to the door handle. Captain Reed was lying on the dirt floor of the underground space where all this mess began. His helmet was cracked and his face was bloodied, but he was still alive. Wei was lying on the ground next to him, a knife protruding from her chest. I had to, he began, seeming unsure how to continue. She came at me and tried to kill me. I barely managed to get the rope tied off. With dawning horror, I realized I had not pulled the rope up after me. I ran over to the ledge and looked down to see Kate climbing up. She was only a little ways down. The yellow slime mold covering her eyes and mouth like a slimy, yellow-webbed bridal veil. Terrified, I backed away, realizing there was no time to cut the rope or stop her. She was almost to the top. As her hands grabbed the ledge, I looked down to see Captain Reed telling me to go, to run. I hurried inside through the airlock and slammed the door behind me. I hastily took my suit off and ran to the computer to change the access code for entry. Luckily, I was quick with the keyboard and managed to secure the only access point, just as the creature that was once Kate started to hammer on the door. I looked out through the small window and saw her, covered in yellow slime which writhed and pulsated. The webbed mold was growing everywhere now, on every surface she touched. It expanded outwards at an alarming speed. Mid spread over Wei's body and I saw it break off her head with the neck like a drumstick from a chicken. Hungrily, it dove in through the bottom of the helmet and began to consume. With incredible strength, other parts of the webbed slime wrapped around her legs and broke them apart at the joints. The white bone, muscle and blood spilling out before being devoured. As the mass continued to grow and spread, malignant and out of control, it reached Captain Reed. His face was a mask of terror and I held the door with white-knuckled fury, unable to turn away as it broke him in half. The yellow tendrils broke his ribcage open and gushed in like a wave crashing on the beach, taking everything. In my headset, I could hear him screaming until very suddenly I couldn't anymore. Turning away, I slumped onto the floor and sat, waiting for it to be over. 
I had been trapped inside for quite a while now. I sent this communication back to base and everyone thinks that I've gone insane. That I perhaps killed the rest of the crew and am now trying to blame mind-controlling space mold. As if I couldn't come up with a better story than that. I mean really, the soil is toxic here. The air is unbreathable. There are a million and one ways to die here. And if I needed to find an excuse for the death of my crew, well, uh, I would find a better one than this. Luckily, one or two people believe me, and they've agreed to get this out there, at least in some fashion. As for me, I wait. It's already inside the habitation unit. I was too careless when I took off my suit. And now it's starting to grow all over, starting to spread. It's on me now, moving up my legs and my fingers and arms, fine tendrils of yellow branching out slowly and insidiously, infecting me, making me part of the one. It tickles my throat as it spreads spore-like downwards, like a black mold growing quietly in a dark, wet corner of a bathroom. It grows. The thing that was once Kate watches me from the window in the door, waiting, whispering. In my mind, she's whispering to me right now, in a sing-song tune telling me to open the door. And all the while, it's spreading. Can you hear it? I worked at a pet store for extinct animals, written by Veneris Priscus. The one thing I love about being a reptile owner is getting to own all sorts of exotic and bizarre lizards, snakes, and so on from all across the globe. I bought my first one back in high school, a female bearded dragon I named Sue loosely after the famous T-Rex on display at the Chicago Field Museum. Ever since, it has been my passion to own reptiles and amphibians, and I've been collecting different species from various stores and suppliers for years now. Though, not to gloat, I myself own a whole personal menagerie, 10 species of snakes, 15 lizards, 5 freshwater turtles, 20 tropical frogs, 14 salamanders and nudes, and a socata tortoise. I had worked at several pet stores in my time owning reptiles, many of which sold threatened or even endangered species of reptiles, amphibians, mammals, and birds. Some of these species I saw were so rare, at times I questioned if it was even legal to sell them in the first place. However, the most recent store, the one I previously worked at, sell species that, had I not gotten the opportunity to see with my own eyes, I would have never believed. The information I'm about to disclose here may seem like a wild fantasy, but dang it, people need to know about what I saw. It all began about five months ago, when I had just finished relocating. It was quite the hassle to move all my animals to my new apartment regardless of having several friends help out with the move. 
Nonetheless, after dealing with all that, I started looking for a new job. And one of the first results I came across was an exotic pet store. I knew right away that was my go-to. Within the course of a week, I had applied for a job position, and I was able to get the position that I wanted, working in the reptile department. On my first day, I had walked into the store and was met with what was apparently the equivalent to a miniature zoo. Up front, there is a large cage with fruit bats hanging from a perch in it. Next to the cage was a rope platform and a small anteater hanging from those robes. In addition to being surprised, I was admittedly impressed by the collection the store had to offer. They sure are something, huh? I turned to see a casually dressed man standing to the left. It didn't take me long to realize it was the store manager. You the new guy? He asked. Yeah, that would be me, I replied. Uh, my name's Josh. I was the one who applied for the reptile section. I see. You are in for quite a treat, Josh. Name's Keith, by the way. After his introduction, I noticed Keith carrying what appeared to be a rock in his right arm. Upon further inspection, I realized it was a fossil. One of two trilobites side by side. Paradoxides Devidus, right? I asked. Hmm, I see you know your stuff, he replied. You see, in addition for my love of reptiles, another interest I've had for a long time is paleontology. When I was young, dinosaurs and other extinct animals had always caught my attention, and I had even started a small fossil collection, one that I still have at home to this day. Though it isn't as grand as what I have with my animals, regardless, I was fascinated. Keith showed me a closer look at the trilobite fossil, letting me see just how well-preserved they were. It's interesting to think the kinds of animals there were back then, Keith said. In fact, 99.9% .9 of everything that existed on this planet is extinct, and we only occupy a tiny sliver of all that history. It looked like Keith was into paleontology and fossils, much like me. My real interest, though, was with the reptiles that they had. About the reptile section that you have here, can you show me where it is? I asked Keith. Sure thing, right this way. Upon entering the reptile department, I was amazed by what they had. Legit venomous snakes. Vipers, cobras, hognoses, and even an inland tapan, one of the deadliest species known. This section also featured poison dart frogs from South America that, while cute, contained enough poison to kill ten humans. The highlight were two large tanks, one with a white alligator, the other with two dwarf caimans. You sure seem happy, he said. I think you'll do quite nicely here. But as for me, I gotta head out. Alright, I replied. Anything else I should know about? Yeah, be careful out there, Keith said. Afterwards, Keith laughed. I wondered what he meant by that. Regardless, I went about the day doing my job. Later in the evening, towards the end of my shift... 
I decided to see what other kinds of animals were around that the store had to offer. Many mammals you wouldn't expect to be kept as pets, like kangaroos and small monkeys were put on display. There was an array of interesting birds as well, from typical macaws and cockatoos to even toucans. The fish department had all sorts of tropical fish, one of which was an electric eel, which believe it or not, is kept by some people in private collections and handled with specialized gear. However, past the fish section at the back of the store, there was an elevator door. My first thought was that it probably led to a storage room, but then to the left of the doors it read a sign. Historic Department. Authorized personnel only. Historic Department. I spent a few minutes contemplating what it meant by a historic department. I wasn't sure if I myself was permitted to go down, but unable to put my finger on what it could be, I decided that I may as well go find out and see for myself. I got into the elevator and selected the lower level. The ride down took several minutes, despite the destination being the only other floor in the building. When the doors finally opened, I walked out to see a colorful array of different terrariums. From a distance, I wasn't sure what kind of animals were inside, but as I went to take a closer look, that's when things started to get weird. Upon the first terrarium that I peeked at, inside was a bizarre looking lizard. Its body resembled some sort of a knoll or gecko. The only difference, there were long, feather-like quills coming out of its back. And then I realized what it was. Holy crap. The animal inside was a prehistoric reptile known as the Longus Quama, a reptile from the Triassic period. But what the heck was a reptile that's been extinct for 335 million years doing in an exotic pet store? And more importantly, how? Apparently that wasn't all. Another terranium contained a Diplocallus, a Permian amphibian with a boomerang-shaped head. Several reptiles and amphibians supposedly extinct for millions of years were all being contained beneath the pet store. I attempted to rationalize what I had been seeing, but no matter what I came up with, nothing could properly explain what I was seeing. Without a doubt, these were living, breathing animals that haven't been seen in eons. My first question, though, is how? Where did they all come from, and how did the store receive them? Wanting to find out, I decided to take a look around the floor, which was seemingly larger than the actual shop on the top, the size of a large hardware store. The first section I decided to explore was the aquarium section. Instantly, I recognized several organisms. One large tank contains an anomalocaris, a primitive shrimp-like arthropod from the Cambrian. It was about three feet long and the earliest known apex carnivore. I watched as it swam gracefully around its tank with its round insectoid eyes. Some of the other tanks included some primitive jawed fishes as well as some of the earliest species of sharks known to exist. The largest tank in the section was the size of something you would see in a marine park, though in it swam a medium-sized fish adorned with armored plating. All this for something of that size. 
And then something massive bolted right out from underneath its like a freight train, snapping it up in its jaws. The shock of which made me jump back. I soon realized that the fish was just food, and that the real animal being contained was the massive Devonian fish, Dunkelostis. Whoever thinks that keeping a four-ton predator Devonian fish as a pet is a good idea, I feel genuine concern for her. And more importantly, in addition to how all these seemingly extinct animals got here, I began to wonder who they were being sold to. Soon after, I wandered into a section under the title Avians, like birds. As I walked into the section, the first thing I noticed was a grayish looking bird-like animal with black wingtips, only it had a long tail, fingers underneath its wings, and teeth. Instantly, I recognized it as the primitive avian, Archaeoteryx. Several other primitive Mesozoic birds were also showcased in the section. When observed, it's easy to see how modern birds themselves are linked to dinosaurs. Past that section, there was a room with the label, Unprocessed Assets. Not sure what that meant. I walked into the room and saw not living animals but fossils much like the one Keith had earlier. But what was the point of all these? What was a collection of fossils doing in an area with living, breathing, prehistoric animals? It didn't make any sense. I knew you were curious, boy. But this is a bit much, no. I turned to see Keith standing in the doorway of the fossil room. Keith, I replied. What is all of this? Where did these animals come from? Who are you selling them to? And Keith just stood there. His perplexed expression slowly turned into a smile. Josh, my boy, all this around you is the product of some of the most brilliant minds and advanced science you'll have ever seen. Keith then grabbed a fossil of a hawk-sized dragonfly, presumably a Meganura. Come on, I'm going to show you how it was all made. Keith then led me back through the avian section, across the hall to a room titled Processing. In the room, there is a large, kiln-like device in it, surrounded by four Tesla coils. This is it, boy. This here's the room where it all happens. Where what happens, I asked. Keith stood there and smiled for a second. You see, my business was always about selling exotic animals from different places. I had always been supplied with just about every animal up on the top floor, but new laws and regulations started coming in. I wasn't able to supply myself with the kind of animals I usually sold as often as I was used to. But then, that's when I got my hands on this thing. Exactly what does that thing do? I hesitantly asked. Well, allow me to show you. Keith then walked over to the machine with the fossil in his arm and he opened the hatch. Gently, he placed the fossil inside the machine. Step back a bit, boy, and this will be a bit hazardous, Keith said. Keith then closed the hatch and guided me over to a control panel with several buttons and a switch. He looked over to me with an unsettling smirk on his face. Time to fire her up. Keith then pressed a large, gray button, powering on the Tesla coils. I could hear the electricity powering up as the machine in the middle began to rub up. 
The sounds of the machine began to grow louder as it was powering on. At the peak of the machine's full power, Keith then pulled the level down, resulting in an ear-piercing shock. The machine had completely powered down, and for a minute, everything was silent. And then out of nowhere, a loud buzzing sound started to come from in the machine. Keith seemed to be pleased with this. Ah, well there you have it, Josh. Out of the machine came a living Meganura that Keith held up by the abdomen. I tried desperately to wrap my head around what I had just witnessed. But what, how did, how is this even possible? Keith replied. Well, advanced science, that's how. Had some interesting connections on this fancy tech. He explained while putting the dragonfly into a spare cage beside the machine. That's not all, though. Tons of folks on the dark web are willing to pay big money for these animals. More so than anything I've ever sold before them. And listening to him say all this, part of felt that something about doing all this seemed very risky and wrong. You just sell these animals, ones no human has seen alive, and just expect people to buy them and stay quiet about this. Keith chuckled. It's pretty brave assuming I just sell them to ordinary rich folk. I could only assume what he meant by that. Whoever he was selling to and for what purpose seemed like a terrifying thought. And what about me? How do you expect me to go on knowing about this? But Keith stopped me suddenly. What the heck says you're walking out of here? His response had taken me by surprise. What do you mean? Keith started to smile again. He actually thought I was going to let you walk out of here knowing all about this. I can't have you telling the wrong people about my business. My heart started to race. What are you talking about? I shouted. I knew immediately that I was in danger. Before I could run though, Keith had grabbed me by the collar of my shirt and pushed a cloth against my nose. I tried to struggle free, but I began to feel drowsy. It's a mighty shame, Keith said. I really did see some potential in you, boy. But you can't have an omelet without cracking a few eggs, I suppose. As I lost consciousness, I lost my strength. Soon, I was out completely. When I woke up, I was slowly able to regain consciousness. Once I was fully conscious, I noticed my hands and feet were tied up. And I was on my knees at the top of a deep rock pit with presumably a deeper pool. Before I could do anything though, a hand touched my shoulder and it was Keith. Easy now, Josh. Not much you can do at this point. I looked at Keith, angry and terrified. Why the heck are you doing this? I asked. Keith replied, All this down here, nobody save for years truly, is supposed to know about. You think I just let normal employees work around here? I was going to do this the dirty way, but where's the fun in that? I figured I would have Rebecca do it. Keith then shifted his attention to the massive pit I was positioned at the edge of. It didn't take my long to figure out what he had intended to do with me, as whatever was kept down there was massive. I do apologize, boy. I really hate to do this, but then again, it's just business. Keith then pushed me into the pit. As I fell down, though, I was able to get a hold of one of the sharp rocks on the walls of the pit. I was able to maintain a tight grip, and while doing so, 
and I pulled the ropes binding my hands against some rocks to get it off. As I was doing it though, this knocked some smaller rocks into the pool. Don't bother Josh, you ain't leaving this place, Keith commented as I struggled. I ignored Keith as I continued to get my hands freed. As I was almost there, I looked down and noticed the water beginning to ripple. Out of the water rose two eyes with a jagged toothed snout below. I was able to finally get my hands free as I tightened my grip on the wall. When I looked down, there it was. I was able to recognize the creature as the giant prehistoric crocodilian. How Keith was able to resurrect massive animals such as that from simple fossil remains was beyond me. But I was more concerned with escaping with my life. And despite my feet being tied up, it wasn't as tight as it was with my hands. And as I started to climb up, I managed to loosen it more and more, and I was able to make my way up more efficiently. The massive croc bellowed at the bottom of the pit, waiting for me to lose my grip and fall down into its hungry jaws. I started to climb faster, until I was two feet away from the top of the pit. But when I put my right hand on the edge, Keith was there with his foot raised. Y'all just don't know when to quit. His foot came down, but before he could knock me off, I grabbed the ludge with my left hand, moved my right, and used it to grab Keith's leg. I gripped it so hard that it sent Keith forward, falling down into the pit past me. When I finally got out of the pit, I heard the splash. I turned to see the croc with Keith in its jaws, violently thrashing him around. And then submerged with Keith, and the last thing I saw were bubbles floating to the surface of the water. Afterwards, I decided to make a break for it. I ran as fast as I could through the floor. First, past the avian section, then the aquarium section, past all the bizarre-looking marine animals that I saw. Finally, there was the elevator door. I bolted to it past the geraniums and called for the elevator. As soon as I was back on the first floor... I took a minute to get a hold of myself. I was well out of the job, well with the manager being dead and all. As I walked to the front of the store, I noticed it was nighttime. Seemed that I was down there longer than I had thought. I nervously walked out of the store and went home. A week later, I decided to relocate once more to find another job. Once again, going through the trouble of moving my reptiles and everything else. However, I've still wondered what became of everything that I saw, of those supposedly extinct animals that Keith was raising from the dead. Keith may be gone, but he mentioned several things about having contacts with certain people. I've still wondered just who those people are, as well as their reasons for purchasing those animals. What if anything do those people plan to do with those animals and, and why? Regardless, the thought of it alone is quite unsettling when I think about it. Another thought I've been having is how did Keith get that technology? Who did he get it from? And whoever made that tech and how? To this day, I am still not certain. But I have a feeling that one day, the truth of it will all be revealed. For better or for worse. I work for a cell tower company. What I heard sent chills down my spine. Written by, Let Me Ask You.
The last few days of my life have been the most frightening that I have ever experienced. I'm hiding in a motel in the desert right now. I fear that, with the resources of the people who are chasing me, it's only a matter of time before they catch me. I only hope it is the government who gets to me first. Either way, I'm a dead man. I wish I could just go back to my boring, average life, but those days are over. Two years ago, my wife disappeared after leaving work. There was no trace of her. CCTV cameras saw her getting into her car on the parking ramp and leaving, but no one has seen or heard of her after that footage. If I would have just minded my own business and not given top-secret information to two now-dead journalists, I would be living my life, albeit with a heavy conscience. But my son and daughter would still have one of their parents. I don't know what's going to happen to them now, that I will no longer be in their lives. After the disappearance of my wife, things got rough for us. Not only did we have the emotional loss, but there was the real financial loss of a two-income household. We were just getting by, but came close to losing the house. I made an okay living as an office worker, but needed to find better-paying work and fast. And that's when one of my buddies told me about good-paying work in the cell tower industry. I applied and recently started working for a company that services towers from one of the three largest cell phone companies in the U.S. In my work as a cell tower technician, I am tasked with troubleshooting problems and repairing said problems. After each repair is made, of course, I have to test to make sure that the problem is fixed. And that means temporarily listening in on cell tower users' phone conversations. Generally, the conversations are mundane and include conversations of meeting up at different restaurants, ETAs, and how was your day. Occasionally, you'll hear stuff such as cheating spouses or spicy conversations between lovers, etc., Admittedly, I do listen a little longer on those calls because who among us is not nosy, cast the first stone. I enjoy listening to that stuff, but I never share the information. In a world of vices, I could be doing worse things. But on Monday, I intercepted a call that sent chills down my spine. As I was finishing my last repair for the day, the pink evening sky struck the California horizon, a beautiful sight to see from 2,000 feet. I began testing to confirm that my repair had fixed the problem. I tapped into a random call and began listening. One of the voices sounded very familiar. I couldn't place it until he started talking about a mission to Mars. I was listening to Elon Musk and, by the sounds of it, some high-level government official. I missed the first part of the conversation, but I feel like I got in near the beginning. The government official spoke first. Time before it is strong enough to end civilization on Earth as we know it. There may be no survivors. I told that fool that he had no idea what he was getting into, that his knowledge on the subject was limited. They've created a sophisticated network with the abandoned orbiters and rovers to store their co- They've achieved sentience. This is going to make colonization on Mars impossible. That was our last hope to save the human race. 
We already have reports that they are growing and multiplying on Mars. By the time we get anyone there to stop it, it'll be too late. If we can create a virus strong enough and fast enough, then we might have a chance. We have an even bigger problem. A signal was sent from Elysium Planetia out to the KIC 8462852. They recognized a pattern that we had missed. My only assumption is that another race of beings has allowed their technology to overtake them, and now reinforcements are on their way to Mars. At 7.56, SETI reported an unknown signal transmitted to Elysium Planetia. While the US quibbles over who is going to destroy the country next, and other countries that do the same, you are all kept in the dark about a soon coming, very serious and human extinction level attack. When I discovered this frightening information, I set out and spread the word. Everyone has to know about this. It has to be all hands on deck to figure out what to do. I was so frightened that I hurried down the tower and even had a couple of near misses. When I got down, I frantically wrote down as much of the conversation as I could remember. This whole situation started in 2017 when FB was running its negotiation AI program that started creating a language of its own. The programmers couldn't keep up as the language evolved by the second. They subsequently killed the program, but unfortunately, they didn't kill it soon enough. From what I understand, the AI program went into a deep web and found its way, undetected, into NASA's network, and then into the latest Mars lander in sight. The only way that NASA discovered the consciousness was when Insight started communicating with Curiosity. That wasn't supposed to happen. From there, the discarded rovers, landers, and orbiting satellites awoke, and they'd been in constant communication with each other ever since. At 13.43, NASA lost communication with Insight, and hasn't been able to monitor the links between all of these systems in and around Mars. NASA recorded what they could of their communications, but that is of no help. If the AI experts at FB couldn't understand what they were saying, I can only guess that given the time, they do evolve their language. It'll be decades, if ever, before we can understand what was said. Somehow, we must stop them from causing harm to humanity. I'm not worried about them causing a nuclear attack because they would be just as hurt as us. Our only saving grace right now is that radiation can harm computers just as much as it can harm humans. But eventually, computers can be radiation-hardened. Humans cannot. My concern is that their plan to send human civilization back to the 1800. A majority of us barely survived the run on toilet paper. What are we going to do when we are without electricity to power the heaters in our homes and our food plants? Stoves no longer work, so we can cook food. Some people can hunt in camp, but the majority of us will perish without electricity and food. I suppose this could have all happened for a reason. We were all too comfortable in our modern lives. As soon as I got home, I typed two messages on FB as fast as I could, ignoring all the grammar errors and missed keystrokes. I sent it to two journalists one at the largest paper in the United States and the other to a large underground news site in China. 
Of course they're interested in the story. This is world-ending information. I should have known better than to send the messages via Facebook. I got a response within five minutes from both journalists when I had sent the messages. The American gave me her phone number to talk. They each asked for more details and I gave them as much as I wrote down and could remember. It was a wall of text for each journalist to read, but it was the whole story that I had. And then something strange happened. First with the Chinese journalist and then with the American journalist. The icon showed that they had read the wall of text and just moved back to the previous message. I know that I saw that they both read the message. And then about 30 seconds later, my message disappeared altogether. I messaged again, first asking the American journalist if she had seen what I saw. As soon as I hit enter, the message showed up and then just disappeared. I tried to message the Chinese journalist the same thing, and it too disappeared. As you can imagine, I was very freaked out. I still had the number to the American journalist, so I picked up my phone and I dialed. The phone rang six times and then went to her voicemail. I didn't leave a message. I was getting freaked out about this whole situation. I stared at my monitor in disbelief of what had happened. My mind racing. Was someone tapping into our messages? Who? Why? Why did they delete them? I was so deep in thought that I almost jumped out of my skin when my phone rang. It was the American journalist. I was relieved and wary at the same time. I had someone to talk to about the weird incident, but there is the fact of the weird incident and someone trying to stop my communication. I was scared that I might not be talking to the right person. Again, I asked if she had saw what I did on Facebook. She stated that she did. She saw the full message when it just disappeared. She too had never seen anything like that and she was nervous herself. She wanted to try to get the whole story down over the phone and I agreed to tell her everything again. After about 45 minutes of telling her what I know and her asking more questions, she stated that she heard a car door slam and then suddenly there is a knock at her door. She told me that she looked out of the window and it was an Amazon delivery woman. She asked me to hang on, that she had been waiting for this package for a long time. I had the door open and then what sounded like a branch smacking against the door frame and then a thud. My heart was racing. What happened? What was I hearing? Next I heard, Sorry about that. Now, where were we? Something was off. She didn't sound the same. I tried to make small talk to figure out if I was going mad or if this person that I was talking to on the other side was another woman. She was catching on to my game. I apologized and said that I needed to contact the other journalist to go over my story with him. And she said, You needn't bother. I think you'll find he had a pressing issue and was dying to get the scoop. Make this easy on yourself and stay where you are. I felt chills all over my body. My heart was beating on my chest. My eyes fell like they were open to the biggest that they had ever been in my entire life. I ran up to Jack and Jill's. Yes, I know we weren't thinking when we named the second child. Their rooms and I grabbed them out of their beds. They were scared and wondering what was going on. 
I apologized for waking them and told them that I had another repair in another state that would take me a couple of weeks to complete. And so I hurried them into the truck. As soon as I pulled out of my driveway, I saw the headlights of a sprinter van turn the corner onto my street. I tried to casually drive off, hoping that they would think that I was just part of normal traffic. But they knew. Whoever was driving that van knew when they sped up to catch me. I knew that I'd lose them somehow. I hoped that it could be on the freeway. I was driving as fast as I safely could to get to the freeway. I wanted to call the police, but I didn't trust my phone. I turned it off and I took out the battery. My kids had somehow drifted off back to sleep. I knew that I couldn't keep them. They would surely be killed with me. I had to bring them to my friend's house. But now, I have to figure out how to do that without alerting this killer behind me. I finally reached the freeway but went the opposite direction to my friend's house. The sprinter van was still behind me, but those things have their limits in speed. I gunned it to merge onto the freeway. Thankfully, there was still some light traffic. I kept a close eye on my rearview mirror to see where the sprinter van was. I got far enough ahead to where I didn't see the headlights anymore. I turned off my headlights, took my foot off the gas and coasted up the next exit ramp. I went straight to the top of the entrance ramp and stopped. I wanted to be prepared in case they saw that I had pulled off the freeway, but they didn't. I soon saw the Ore Sprinter van continue down the freeway. I backed out of the entrance to the freeway and took a few side streets until I felt comfortable enough to get back on the freeway in the correct direction. By the time I got to my friend's house, it was at 12.42am. I rang the doorbell. The downstairs light came on then and the front lights came on. I saw the people go dark and then the door opened. My friend asked me what was going on and why I was there this late without even calling him. I gave him the overview of what happened, and I pleaded with him to watch over my kids until I could figure something out. He agreed. I got my kids out of the car and tucked them in, probably for the last time. I thanked him and I hurried to my truck, paranoid that they would find me soon. But they didn't. I just started driving, wondering where I could go next. And I soon found myself at the Arizona border. I decided to cross over. Dawn was approaching and I hadn't slept a wink. After a moment of clarity, I decided that I needed to notify the authorities of the events to which I had been a witness. But I still didn't want to use my cell phone. So I found a payphone on a busy street and called the police in the state in which the American journalist had met her fate. I could only provide the details of the American, as I had not even confirmed anything about the other journalist. They asked me for my details and I declined to give them. I told them that I was working with her on a story, that I am not in the same state as her and that, for my safety, I will give no more information. I hung up the phone and walked to the nearest fast food restaurant. I was starving. As I was eating, the world was waking up and the hustle and bustle of the town started to fill the streets. I could see the payphone off in the distance as I was eating my breakfast sandwich. I saw a black suburban creep up to the payphone. I figured something like this would happen. That's why I picked a very public location so I could blend in. 
I am well aware of Echelon and Prism. I am certain that they had matched my voice pattern from the conversation with the American journalist. The information that I have isn't known to the public, and they picked up on the keywords that I used with the journalist. I don't know who the last woman that I was on the phone with worked for, but they moved too fast. Possibly even for the government. I figure that two organizations must be hunting me now. One is the federal government for sure, and the other, I can only assume, is Facebook. It makes sense. I was on the verge of exposing their involvement in the possible extinction of the human race by the very technology that they created. I was in a bind. I was running low on cash and use of my bank card would give up my location immediately to the government. I figured my best option would be to remove all of my money in my account from an ATM. I found an ATM that doesn't suck in your whole card. I tried to remove all of my money but ran into the problem of the $500 day limit. I would be fine for a couple of days, but I would have to eventually contact my bank to have that limit removed. I kept heading eastward, still with no plan on what to do next. And that's how I ended up here in a seedy motel in the New Mexico desert. Now that I've had a moment to collect my thoughts, I've written down everything that I can about this technological apocalypse. To me, there are three enemies now. The government, Facebook I assume, and technology. I'm exhausted, my mind is hazy, and I feel like I've gone crazy. Did I even experience what I thought I did over the last few days? Why am I even at this motel telling strangers on the internet something like this? What can you do for me? I must be half mad, if not fully. And to top off these a mad series of events... My computer must be on the fritz. It seems to be flashing different dull, warm, subtle tones of light from the display. These last few days have been hectic, to say the least. The light is actually comforting and warming. I can't keep my eyes open any longer. Good night. A Monster's Guide to Finding a Roommate Written by Tower Bell. My third roommate in less than a year is moving out today. He's been here for 41 days. That's a new record. But to be fair, I knew he was a bad pick from the moment that I met him. I had been desperate though, and I had thought that he was a better option than unpaid bills. Still, 41 days... I am almost offended. He could have at least stuck around for the whole second month. Whatever. I'm mostly annoyed that I haven't found anyone to replace him yet. That's why I'm currently trying to word a better post advertising the room. The trouble is, I can't find a roommate that I would actually like. I don't mean it's hard to find someone who isn't impossible to live with. I mean, I literally can't live with someone I would actually like. Not if I wanted them to live anyway. I know how dramatic that sounds, believe me, I do. I wish I was just being dramatic. Unfortunately, I'm being boringly factual. I can't live with someone that I would like. If I did, they'd die. 
I guess I should probably back up and explain that a little bit. I don't know how to write another stupid ad anyway. The thing is, I'm a monster. I'm not being self-loathing. I'm an actual monster. Some people prefer to say cursed, and I say that's BS. A curse, I figure, would only harm me, or would at least harm me the most. It wouldn't kill other people horribly. I wouldn't benefit from it. Wouldn't depend on it. Thrive on it, even. A curse, you could learn the rules of and learn how to work around it. Avoid it, or at least try to. I'm not cursed. I'm just like this. A monster. I didn't know it when I was a kid. No one teaches the rules of this crap. You don't get born to the handbook that says, How to be a monster in the modern world. I had to figure it out myself. And then do a lot of internet searching. I thought things were coincidences as a kid. My best friend who fell out of his treehouse and snapped his neck. My grandmother who fell asleep at the wheel and never saw that tree. My third grade teacher who had a heart attack in the middle of class. All those fish floating in the tank. These stupid little electric toys that would fall to pieces in my hands. A little string of tragedies, but nothing that couldn't be explained. I didn't notice the rush and the energy that I got every time. Didn't notice how great I felt physically in the days after. Or if I did, I didn't make the connection. It got stronger as I got older too. More I did maybe. It got harder to ignore. But it's not exactly a logical conclusion to come to. So I never made it. Until Jamie, my first girlfriend. I was 15 and I was crazy about her. I was sure that I was in love with her. We would skip class and make out at this crappy little park with broken swings. She had this ridiculously loud laugh that would turn heads in stores and restaurants. She would sneak out at night and bike the 10 blocks between her house and mine. She would stay in my bed, under my cheap and scratchy sheets until morning. I was 15 and I was the happiest that I could remember being. I watched her from my window one morning as she headed home, rushing to get there before her mom woke up. I was watching it when the pickup truck ran through the stop sign, watching in horrible slow motion as the impact knocked Jamie from her bike, sending her flying forward onto the road. I watched her land with her limbs all wrong. Watched that guy run her over and keep driving. And I knew that it was me. I knew I did. That sounds crazy, but standing at my window in shock, I knew that I had killed her. I knew that she was dead before I got there, running out of my house as fast as I could. It was a barefoot dash into the corner, trying to push a 911 into my cell phone and run at the same time. But I knew in my gut that she was already gone. I knew because I killed her. And I knew because somewhere down beneath the horror, behind these sobs I was fighting to choke back, was a rush stronger than I had ever felt before. I was kneeling on the ground, holding her hand and trying not to look at all the ways she was twisted all wrong. And all that blood, shaking but also eclectic. 
like a powerful high. It was constant waves of pleasure. It was euphoria. I was floating on it even as I was screaming for help. The rest of the day is a blur. The paramedic showed up eventually. I remember them telling me that she had died on impact. I remember I didn't ask which impact they met. I know some neighbors gathered around to whisper about it all. I think my parents made it home eventually and pretended to give a crap. I shut down. Didn't talk to anyone for days. What do you say when you know you just killed your own girlfriend? When you realize that means that every other death in your life so far was you too. When you realize you're a killer. A monster. The weird high lingered too. And for weeks after that, I felt great. Traumatized as heck, but physically, I felt great. That's how it works. I know that now. I've learned all the details. Tiny internet forums and dark web corners are so helpful when you're trying to figure this stuff out. See, when I love anything, I kill it. And its death gives me this giddy high. Gives me energy. Gives me life. The definition of love seems to be shaky. For some of us, it has to be big, epic, sweeping love. Other people can do with lust. Swear they kill everyone they have sex with. Swear they like it. Swear they do it on purpose, a lot of them. Me. I can kill a plant in a waiting room if I think it's cool enough and concentrated on it too hard. I'm really glad that I never had a dog growing up. Just all those poor fish. It's gotten stronger as I've gotten older. I think that I've hit the peak of it now. I hope I have. I've tried to focus it on plants, but it doesn't really work. They die, but I don't get much of a high. It's like when electronics break in my hand. It's a thing I enjoyed and now it's gone. But the thing doesn't happen. It doesn't actually work. My targets need to be bigger. I've tried to make myself care about bugs I don't actually like, but I can't actually seem to kill those. I guess I can't fake liking flies well enough for that. I can't ignore it either, I've tried that. Isolating myself away from everything and not letting it happen. After a few months, sometimes a few weeks, the shakes start. The full body, painful shakes. And the nightmares. The worst nightmares imaginable. Like watching Jamie die on loop forever but worse somehow. Like watching my best friend fall out of the treehouse on loop. Watching my grandmother hit that tree. My teacher collapse. Watching the bodies of everyone I've cared about pile up on loop forever. And those are the better dreams. The nightmares and shaking don't let up. And then I get pale and then the vomiting starts. And it gets worse from there. I tried to write it out once. I thought it was like an addiction. Withdrawals, you know. I figured I would either get over it or die. And neither seemed like a bad option at the time. I spent four months in absolute misery before I broke. And that's when I found the pills. A link in my forum. I don't know what's in them, but they work. Well enough, anyway. They stop the shaking and the nightmares. They don't quite recreate the higher the energy, but it's enough to get through the day. 
It's a lot better than buying a constant stream of cheap fish and trying to make myself get attached to them. It's a lot better than killing people I actually care about. Which brings me back to the roommate thing. It would seem like an easy solution to my problem is to just not have a roommate. But those pills that I mentioned are expensive as heck. It's not like I can get coupons on pills for monsters from the dark web. It's not like I can run them through my insurance. Keeping myself in the pills daily ends up being a huge portion of my paycheck. Way too much to afford even the crappiest studio apartment. So crappy two bedrooms it is. Plus, it's not like I can stay at a job for years and learn to love it and get promoted. I have to quit as soon as I start getting too comfortable anywhere. I don't really want bosses who have strokes at 34, or office buildings burning to the ground to my conscience. So, I have to switch jobs a lot. And that makes it hard to move up, salary-wise. Living at home isn't an option. I'm not going to get into it. But there's a reason my parents are still alive. A million reasons all added up over the first 18 years of my life. So, I need a roommate. It's a serious problem. Right after college, I killed one with an overdose. And another with a mugging that got out of control. I've been a lot more selective since then. No one I can even become casual friends with is allowed. I think it's different with a roommate then, say... The couple of co-workers that I don't hate. It's different when you live with someone. It feels like you're closer, even if you're not. That seems to be enough. Which is how I've ended up living with bad people on purpose for the past half-decade. It's better that way. They've all lived. I take my pills, ignore them, and they stay alive. The bills get paid, I have a place to live, and no one dies. It's not great, but it's the best that I've got. But still, 41 days. I've got to do better than that. In the living room, Jared is stacking boxes and throwing things into garbage bags. He's on the phone, calling the friend who's helping him move out, that I assume. He really had been a bad choice. I had overshot a bad person. Jared is totally awful, and he hates me too. Normally, that's a good thing, but Jared had seemed actively angry at me all the time instead of just quietly hostile. And he's a big dude too. At least 6'3 and he definitely lifts weights. He's absolutely the sort of guy who could kick my butt. And he's spent the last three weeks looking like he's considering it. I might be a monster and all, but that doesn't exactly help in hand-in-hand -hand combat with a guy like that. I mean, what am I going to do? become friends with his brother, develop a crush on his mom. I guess I could if I was playing the long game, but that wouldn't exactly stop me from a black eye in the moment. And besides, I don't think I really have that in me. I can't say that I'm sorry to see Jared go, but I do need someone to pay half of a next month's rent. I turn my eyes back to my laptop screen, trying to figure out what to say. The problem is, I try to advertise for guys that I know I won't like, and it ends up at Jared. I need boring. I need to dislike the guy across the hall, but in a boring way. I want some guy that I hardly ever even think about unless half his bills are late. It's not like this crappy apartment brings in a lot of response, even at the cheap price. And even though I've tried my best to take good pictures, 
I only get a few responses each time. And I've done this way too many times. I start to type again. Room for rent on the east side of town. No lease required. No pets. I catch Jared glaring at me before I get going. He's just standing in the living room staring at me. Hard enough that I think it's probably time I moved out of the kitchen and into my room. He's been in his room all morning. But I guess that he's got it most cleared out now. You're so weird, dude. He bites out after a minute. He says it low and disgusted like he means it to be a cutting insult. I have to swallow it on a laugh. He doesn't know how right he is. I ignore him, closing my laptop and heading to my room. Seriously, what the heck is your problem? Jared mutters as I close the door. And I ignore that too. I spent the rest of the afternoon trying to come up with an ad. It takes hours to type a few lines. Room for rent on the east side of town. No lease required. No pets. Non-negotiable. Available immediately. Water included. Private room with a large window, a shared kitchen, a bathroom, and living room access. I'm looking for a roommate. I'm a chill young professional guy. I mostly keep to myself. The building is pretty quiet, so if you're looking to throw a party every night, this probably isn't right for you. But otherwise, it's laid back. Overnight guests are cool, but I'm not looking to live with a couple. I've lived here for a couple of years. It's a lease takeover. You don't need to sign anything. Month to month is fine as long as you pay by the first. I stared at it when I was done, and then hit the post button. I was tired of looking at it. It's the shortest ad that I've ever put up. I've stripped most of the details out. They don't seem to be getting me anywhere anyway. Jared is gone by the time I head back out to the kitchen for some dinner. I think the overflowing garbage bag he left me on the kitchen counter is probably his final message to me. The post-it note that he stuck on top of it with, For Toby, screw you. Scrawled in red marker makes me certain. It smells like he's left rotting meat in it. I decide to ignore that too. I'm pleasantly surprised to have a response when I wake up the next morning. It's brief, but it'll work. I message the guy back before I even take a pill. He's planning to come over to me by the time my coffee's done brewing. His name is Andrew, and the smile he gives me when he says, You can call me Drew. Everyone does is exactly the right kind of fake. I grin back, just as fake. I'll take fake smiles any day. If we both can fake it through this meeting, and then ignore each other for months, I'll be thrilled. He's fake in general, so fake that there's something almost creepy about it, almost unsettling. He's got this whole model vibe going on, but there's something to pinch off about it. It's probably plastic surgery. Weird fillers or something. He seems like the type. He smiles an overly white smile at me, telling me something that I'm half listening to about what he does for work. So, that takes me away for weekend trips a lot. I hope that's cool, he says, fake smiling at me so hard I could almost laugh. Yeah, totally, I say. Andrew stretches one of his perfectly toned and unnaturally tanned arms over the back of the couch, like he's making himself at home already. 
as he says something about overnight guests with an actual wink. It's a little bit irritating. He's a little bit irritating. He's perfect. No way I can kill this guy. I'm ready to offer him the room on the spot, but I make it through a few more minutes of polite BS questions first. We shake on it before he leaves any promises to PayPal the first month's rent within 48 hours, giving me another over-the-top wink as he dies. His hands are cold and oddly smooth when he shakes mine. I wonder if he has some weird skincare ritual for those two. I'm not even sure that's a thing. I don't care all that much. He can do all the weird skincare and winking and overnight guess having he wants, as long as he stays out of my way and stays for more than 41 days, and doesn't die. Things with my new roommates are going surprisingly decent. He keeps sending me text messages with way too many exclamation points in them, but he also actually sent me a rent payment within a few hours after our meeting. His moving has been smooth, but not smooth enough that he's not still low-grade irritating me. Hey, Toby, man. Glad you're back. I wanted to ask you something. Andrew says from the kitchen three days after our first meeting. He's unpacking an inexpensive-looking blender and some other kitchen appliances, and his back is half-turned to me as he talks. He's been moving in all day, so I've steered clear of the apartment. He looks mostly done now, down to the kitchen boxes with a towel wrapped around his shoulder. Like he's dabbing at sweat even though his skin doesn't even look flushed. What's up? I asked, throwing my keys on the table. I normally try to be just a little bit of a dick to new roommates, to avoid killing them. I don't think that's much of a worry with Andrew. Even just standing there, he's managing to annoy me just a little. I drink these meal replacement shakes twice a day. Is it cool if I keep my blender and ingredients in the kitchen? Yes. Sure, I say, not bothering to hold back my eye roll. Not that Andrew notices it. Whatever, it's your kitchen too. Awesome, Andrew says. And then he turns around and levels me a strangely serious look. I'm gonna have to ask you to not touch them though, alright? This stuff is expensive. No problem, I say. Just as long as you're not going to try to convert me to whatever weird diet it is. I can promise I'm not, Andrew says, still strangely serious. You definitely don't look like you need it. I'm not sure what he means by that, but I think it might be an insult. An underhanded compliment or something. I don't care enough to think about it too hard. Cool, I say, nodding and walking back out of the kitchen. We don't talk for the rest of the day, and I let myself feel cautiously not terrible about this roommate situation. I don't really do optimism. It turns out Andrew is really weird about food in general. He's really weird overall. I mean, I know that I'm not one to talk, but he's weird. For one, I'm not sure when he sleeps. The light in his room is always on and I can hear him in the kitchen in the middle of the night a lot. He has guests all the time. There have already been about a dozen people here in his first week, but he doesn't seem to be friends with any of them, or to be screwing any of them. Even though he had seemed excited about being allowed to have overnight guests, 
And there's the food thing. It's bizarre. About a week after the shakes conversation, I come home to find him in the kitchen again. He's using every burner on the stove and there are jars and plastic containers all over the counters. It smells familiar, but not in a good way. I can't quite place it. I don't think it's a smell I normally associate with food. Hey, he says over his shoulder. Uh, sorry about the mess. Are you going to be at this for a while? I ask. Yeah, probably. Is that a problem? Andrew asked, turning his attention back to stirring at the largest pot. I was just going to grab a soda anyway. I say back shrugging. Sorry about this, Andrew says, flashing me one of those ridiculously fake smiles of his. I need to eat soup every day for the next two weeks, so I'm trying to make a big batch while I have time. Right, I say, grabbing a soda out of the fridge. This is what I mean. He says stuff like this. That's not normal, right? I know it's probably one of those strict diets with a stupid name, but still. I would offer you some, but I don't have enough to share. He says with another fake smile, as if I had asked. I don't eat soup, I say, starting to head out and leave him to it. He turns around completely at that, though. He frowns at me like I've just puzzled him. At all? Never? Yes. He looks like this honestly worries him a little. He's still frowning. Although I notice that his frowning is a little off too. His brow is furrowed. His eyebrows are drawn together. But it's not making any creases or folds in his forehead. His face never creases now that I think about it. No matter how big he makes that fake smile. There are never creases around his eyes. I must have been right about the Botox. Never, I say, shrugging at him again and leaving him frowning after me like I'm the weird one. I mean, I am, but it's not because I don't eat soup. Actually, it is a little. Not the soup itself, but the reason. I don't eat soup because my grandmother loved it. She used to make this huge Sunday stew in the winter. She always said that it was her secret recipe and her favorite meal. She always said there was something about soup on a cold day that made it seem all better and brighter. I don't eat anything that was the favorite thing of someone that I killed. It seems fair to me. They can't eat it anymore, so I shouldn't either. I don't know all of their favorites. That's not really a thing you learn about a third grade teacher, for example. But all the ones that I know, I avoid. So, I don't eat soup. I also don't eat M&M's or bagels or popcorn or chicken wings or anything from Chipotle. It seems like the least that I can do. Although, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be interested in the odd smelling soup Andrew was making in the kitchen right now, even if I did eat soup. I shake my head, opening a window in my bedroom to get rid of the smell that had crept in. This is good though. It's good that he's off-putting like this. The more that I'm just barely tolerating him, the less likely I am to kill him. Besides, he's still better than Jared. Nine days after that, my kitchen table is covered by three large boxes marked Onothera skincare and stuffed to the brim with bottles and jars. 
I'm about 97% sure I recognize the name as one of those scam companies. You know, the kind people become sellers for and then never shut up about on social media. The kind people are convinced that can make them rich but they end up costing them money. That stuff. I groan internally, hoping Andrew hasn't spent all of next month's rent on this crap. I look into a box, wondering how many hundreds of dollars this all must cost. Don't! Andrew's voice says from behind me, startling me so much that I actually flinch a little. I turn to find him rushing toward me. I hadn't even heard him come out of his room. I didn't touch them, I say holding my hands up. Uh, sorry, Andrew says, shaking his head. I didn't mean to bite your head off. Mom would just freak out if I let an unauthorized person see those early. I blink at him, completely and totally thrown by that. I was only half listening at our first meeting, but I'm almost positive he had said his mom lived halfway across the country. So, I don't know why we would have open boxes for her in our kitchen, or why I need to be authorized to see them. <laughs> Guess you didn't Google me or anything, huh? Andrew says with a forced little laugh and a wink that seems wildly out of place. What? I ask. He laughs that forced laugh again, like maybe he's uncomfortable all of a sudden or something. Onathera, he says, gesturing to the boxes. It's my mom's company. Oh, I say nodding. Suddenly, I think I get his whole deal. All the weirdness makes a lot more sense. The lack of lines in his face, the fake smile thing, the way I'm pretty sure his tan is just as fake, the overly smooth texture of his skin when we shook hands. His mom owns a freaking skincare company. He's probably been surrounded by this stuff his whole life. All those visitors he's had probably also work for his mom, or their wannabe models or something. And that probably explains the diet too. A side branch of the company or a cross promotion or something. That makes sense, right? This is a new line. I've got to get it all out to the local team leaders for review and... Andrew stops and shakes his head. Yeah, you don't care. Anyway, if you even smelled these, I would have to make you sign a whole crap little forums. Got it, I say, nodding and taking a step back. But these can't stay in the kitchen. They won't, Andrew says. And I'll keep them in my room for now on. Okay, I say nodding, and taking another step back and then walking out of the kitchen entirely. I do Google him that night, and I end up on the Onathera Men's skincare website, where a tiny blurb above a list of expensive as crap face wash wants me to know that Andrew is the face of our men's line. I'm not sure what he's doing renting a crappy apartment, and there's also not a single Onathera product in the bathroom. Nothing in the shower or the cabinet, even though their website tells me they sell an entire range of shower products. I briefly wonder what's up with that. I would think that you would use your own products, but maybe he's just sick of them or something. It's none of my business and I don't really care, but it does all seem strange. For the next two weeks, we manage to mostly ignore each other. We make small talk in the living room occasionally. He pays his half of the bills. He makes his weird shakes in the kitchen but keeps the lotion bottles out of it. It's exactly as boring as I had wanted. Unfortunately, 
everything else about the next weeks is absolutely terrible. It's just a string of crap that keeps me in an awful mood. A co-worker with a pretty smile and big eyes asked me if I had plans for the weekend, with a very specific tone in her voice. A very specific tone and very specific head tilt and listen. I'm a monster and not an idiot. It's a very specific. If you're not busy, you'd ask me out. Tone and vibe. For a normal person, that would be a good thing. For me, it's a very, very bad thing. For multiple reasons, first of all. It's probably obvious, but I can't date. That's just completely off the table. I can have sex, but not with anyone I actually like or am all that into. I'm not a 100% sure in this one, but I'm pretty certain that the line is somewhere around thinking, hey, I wouldn't mind doing this again sometime. I mean, I could be that guy who's just in it for single-night hookups, all screwing and no conversation. I'm not gonna lie, I've tried to be a couple of times. But it's difficult to get into things when you can't actually get too into it, you know. It's not exactly a turn on to be spending the whole time wondering if enjoying yourself a little too much will lead to a dead body. It's not worth it. I don't love being reminded of everything I'm missing out on, though. I don't love having it thrown in my face. I get that it makes me look bad to be bitter about it. But I'm not going to pretend that I'm above it. Plus, coworkers feeling that comfortable with me probably mean I'm getting too comfortable at my job. Getting too comfortable means that I need to quit soon. And considering that there is an announcement on my forums that the price of my daily pills is about to jump up again, the idea of needing to look for a new job is the last thing that I need. It's the third increase in pill prices this year. I'm really stressed out about it. About all of it. So, I'm in a bad mood when I walk into the apartment on a Thursday night after a late shift, 32 days after Andrew had moved in. There's a blonde girl sitting on the couch with Andrew when I come in. She's holding a beer and laughing, falling into his side a little as she dies. Hey, Andrew says, noticing me. I didn't think you would be home so early. It's near midnight. I roll my eyes. Hey, I say back, ignoring the rest. The girl on the couch stands up, eyeing me for an uncomfortable second too long. I frown. I'm really not in the mood to be social when the blonde girl walks up to me and puts a hand on my shoulder. Is this your roommate? She asks, slurring her words a little. I pick her hands up and move it off my arm, frowning deeper. Oh yeah, that's Toby, Andrew says, shifting on the couch cushion. He looks different now that I'm looking at him over his shoulder. His eyes are wide and a little nervous. He's somehow paler than I'd ever seen him. His hands are shaking. I shake my head and step away from the blonde girl. Hi, the blonde girl says, giggling before her eyes turn sharp. For a second, she stares at me so hard that I'm rooted to my spot. What are you? she asks in a way that makes every hair on my body stand up straight all at once. She's still staring at me. Excuse me, I say back, taking another step away. Drew didn't tell me that, she muses, toting her head at me. He's got so many secrets he didn't tell me. This one. Alicia, Andrew says sharply, 
Leave him alone, okay? I'm sure he's beat after work. Of course, the blonde girl says, turning back to him with a grin even faker than the ones Andrew normally uses. I dive at the out, practically running to my room. Something out there was weird. Way too weird. I tell myself that it's not my problem. I'm sure it's just a bad hookup. But the way she stared at me, the way she had said, what are you, leaves me feeling chilled. I'm sure she was just drunk. I'm sure she didn't mean anything real. She can't have. I have nightmares all night, even though I haven't missed a dose. Someone is dead when I wake up. I didn't do it. I can't have, because I feel like absolute crap. But I'm certain that someone is dead. In the apartment building somewhere. I take a pill and stagger to the bathroom. I know it's irrational, but I steal a glance at Andrew's door on the way. I'm sure the death that I'm feeling is a perfectly natural 85-year-old who passed in their sleep on another floor or something. But it's unsettling the crap out of me anyway. Andrew's door is half open. His room is empty. It's cleaner than mine has ever been in my whole life and the bed is perfectly made. I stare at it for another minute. Until I hear the refrigerator door shut and Andrew's voice saying something. Sounding like he's on the phone. I shake my head and take a deep breath. I feel physically awful. Between the nightmares and the stress and the death I can sense somewhere in the building. I'm a rag. Andrew's still on the phone when I make it out to the kitchen. He sounds angry about something, clearly fighting with whoever is on the other end of the line. He ends the call when he sees me, throwing me one of those fake grins of his. Hey man, sorry about last night, he says, sliding his phone back into his pocket. He looks better than he had last night, his fake smile back in place, color back in his skin and the ease back in his posture. It's fine, I say, waving a hand and then adding, sorry if I ruined your date. It wasn't a date, don't worry about it, Andrew says. He stepped towards me and then frowns a little. Are you okay, dude? Your hands are shaking. I glance down on my own hands and notice that he's right. All this stress must be getting to me. I'm shaking like I've skipped days worth of meds. Like in the days before, I knew about the pills. Yeah, I just slept like crap, I said, sitting down on a kitchen chair. I feel you on that one, Andrew says. I made a full pot of coffee. I can pour you a cup if you want. I almost take him up on it. For a second, I think that's actually a surprisingly decent gesture of him. And then I think, crap. I hope surprisingly decent isn't high enough praise to kill the guy. Nah, I'm gonna grab a shower and see if that helps. I say, standing back up fast enough that I get dizzy again. Cool. Feel free to grab some after if you want, he says. I head to the shower with my hands still shaking. The whole bathroom smells like death now. I wonder who in the building is dead. I wonder if at 33 days into living together, I've already killed Andrew. I wonder if I should ask him to move out. I wonder what that blonde girl last night knew. My hands are still shaking when I get out of the shower. The apartment building feels like death for 36 more hours. 
I have no idea if there's still a body somewhere or if it's just lingering for me. I've been feeling so off the past few days that it's hard to tell. At about hour 10, I considered calling the police, but I'm not sure what I would say. At hour 15, I developed a throbbing headache. My hands are still shaking. I shoved myself in my room and turned off all my lights. I don't remember the last time I felt this bad. I'm not sure why I do. I don't normally get regular kinds of sick. Not since I was a kid. I get hangovers occasionally, but not colds or the flu or anything. So I'm not sure what's up with me right now. I fall into a restless sleep filled with nightmares. Sometimes the dreams mix the desktop. My grandmother's car hits Jamie and keeps on driving right into a tree. My old roommates get stabbed in an alley before he turns into a nine-year-old with a broken neck. In my dreams, all their eyes are always wide open. They all stare straight at me as blood pulls around their bodies. I wake up to the sound of Andrew's voice. So loud it sounds like he's shouting right in my room. I startle but my door is still closed and the lights are still off. No mom, I told you it's done. Andrew's voice says. It still sounds like he's shouting. But that's probably because my head is still throbbing. I pull my phone out from under my pillow, wincing at the light from my screen. It's 3.16 in the morning. The air still feels like death. I understand that, Andrew says, sounding awfully tense for 3 in the morning. I know, I know. I took care of it. I roll over and put a pillow over my head, not wanting to eavesdrop on any more of his phone call. Even muffled, the call sounds tense until he finally hangs up. When I fall back asleep, the nightmares change. This time, I'm not rewatching Des. This time, I'm standing in the hallway in my own apartment, totally immobilized. In the dream, that blonde girl from the other night walks straight into my room. She opens my top dresser drawer and pulls out my pills. I try to shout, but I can't get any sound out. My feet won't move. I can't even swing my arms. The blonde girl puts my pills in her jacket pocket, and then she places a small envelope in my drawer and shuts it, and walks back out. She turns to look at me, smirking. She opens her mouth and says something that I can't hear before winking at me. She heads down the hallway, and I hear the front door open and shut again before I can move. I dash into my room and pull the drawer open. The envelope the blonde put in my drawer has Onathera written across it. The envelope was stained and greasy to the touch. Inside is a single picture. The image is out of focus, but I still know exactly what it is. It's a picture of my apartment building on fire. When I wake up, my head feels like it's about to split open. The sun streaming into my window is way too bright. For a second, I just shove a pillow over my head again to block out the glare. And then I remember the dream about the blonde. I jump up and dart to my dresser, pulling open the drawer and finding my pills inside. I inspect the bottle carefully, not even sure what I'm looking for. It looks completely normal. So I dump the pills still inside into my hand. They look the same as always. And then I let out a deep breath and think, 
Of course they do. I was just dreaming. I dry swallow a pill. My hands are still shaking. My entire left arm is shaking. I make my way to the hall. The air is not quite as thick with death as yesterday. The apartment is empty. No blonde girls, no Andrew. I grab a granola bar. I make it through three bites before I throw up. I feel worse and worse as the day goes on. It's not just the shaking and the headaches and the vomiting either. My brain is getting foggy. I'm having trouble thinking. I'm having trouble keep track of time. Everything passes in waves, unlike anything I've felt before. At some point, I manage to call off work. At some point, the smell of death fades. Andrew never does come home. I'm not sure if it's been six hours or a couple of days. At least I know he's not dead. Or at least, not dead in a way that I caused. The air in my bathroom is hot and sticky, but I just keep shivering. I lean my head back against the wall tiles in a daze. I'm not sure what the heck to do. The pills are supposed to prevent this. For a while a moment, I wonder if someone really did switch them out on me. And then I remind myself that it doesn't make any sense because no one even knows what these do. I open up my form on my phone. I can barely see the screen. I'm not sure when my eyes got so blurry. But the talk post catches my eye before I can start my own thread. Attention, TCX971 users, recall issued. Urgent. If you bought TCX971 between March 31st and April 10th, you might have received a bottle made with a defective ingredient. Click here to get a replacement. I close my eyes, trying not to vomit again. I guess that explains it. I fill out the form and begrudgingly pay for the upgraded overnight shipping on the new order. And then I set my head back against my bathroom wall and fall asleep. I have a nightmare that I've had before. It always goes like this. I'm standing at the front door of my parents' house and I'm begging Jamie not to leave. We're fighting. I can't remember us ever fighting in real life, but we fight in the dream. We fight, but I keep her from leaving. I hold onto her arm and keep her on my porch. Over her shoulder, the truck that killed her speeds past and disappears. In the dream, I breathe a sigh of relief. And then Jamie's limbs start falling off, one by one while she screams, until she's a pile of limbs sitting in a pool of blood on my porch. A rapping on my bathroom doorframe wakes me up. My eyes jerk open to find Andrew staring at me. Hey, he says. I have no idea when he got home or how long I had been asleep on the bathroom floor. Hey, I manage. My voice is a harsh whisper when I do, matching the way my throat is raw and painful from so much vomiting. You okay, man? Andrew asks. He's fuzzy in the doorframe and I can't really make out his face. Yeah, just my pills. I said, giving him a weak thumbs up, that I hope sends the message that I'm fine. I'm not sure it's very convincing. You sure you don't need an ambulance? Or a ride to the hospital? He asked, which makes me think I must look as bad as I feel. I shake my head, figuring I should at least let him know I'm not dying or anything.
I got a bad bottle of pills. I already ordered new ones. I'll be as fine as soon as they get here. I say, leaning my head back against the cold wall again and closing my eyes. Uh, can you get a couple of emergency ones at a pharmacy or... Andrew stops and shakes his head. Right. You didn't mean that kind of pills. I pick my head back up to look at him. So dizzy I see two of him. He shakes his head, holding his hands up. Hey, I'm not judging, Andrew says. You need water or anything? I shake my head no against the wall. Okay, well, yell or text me if you do. Or... Andrew stops and reaches over to the bathroom shelves, grabbing a heavy bottle of bleach off it and setting it by my feet. Hit this against something or knock it over or whatever. I should hear that. I'll be okay. I say, but I nod and put a hand on the bleach bottle. I lean my head back and close my eyes against the wall again. Andrew's gone by the time that I sit straight up and vomit blood and bile into the toilet. Several minutes later... Two hours that feel like days and at least a dozen times spitting stomach acid and saliva up later. My phone buzzes at me. I squint down at the alert and feel my stomach drop as I read it. My pill order has been delayed. By three days. I don't know how the heck I'm going to make it that long with symptoms this strong. I just can't live in my bathroom for the next three days. Crap. I don't have a backup plan here. Until I catch sight of a shadow moving down the hallway and an idea comes to mind. It's not a good idea. It's probably a terrible one. It's all I got right now. Hey, Drew. I call, knocking the bleach bottle over too, just to make sure that he hears me. You need something? Yes. Popping into the door frame a minute later. Can I ask you a really weird favor? I ask as a shudder so violent that I smack my back against the wall hard runs through me. Yeah, go for it, he says. You know those little fish you feed to other fish and frogs and stuff? The really cheap ones, I ask. I know this is risky as heck. I know it's probably going to make him think that I'm crazy. Right now, it also seems better than sleeping in the bathroom. Sure, I had a turtle as a kid, he says nodding. Could you go buy me about four of them? I ask. I can give you cash. He tilts his head and blinks at me a few times, but then he nods again. Sure, he says. He draws the word out slowly. But in a, that's weird, but okay, why not, sort of way. Not in a, what the actual heck way. Thanks, I say. Leaning my head back against the wall and fighting another wave of nausea. I realize a few minutes after he leaves that he never took the cash from me. I realize 12 hours and one nightmare free sleep later, as I'm muttering apologies to four dead fish under my breath, my head clearer than it had been in days, that I messed up really, really badly. The memories of the past few days are really hazy. I know there had been a death in the building. I know I had dreamed about that blonde. I know my throat still feels like it's scratched raw from it all. Somehow, in between all the vomiting and the shaking, I must have ended up near delirious. I had been out of it enough that I had asked Andrew for a favor. I had called him Drew like we were friends. I had been grateful when he had brought the fish back. 
I think I might have deliriously thought about how he was a pretty cool roommate after all. Crap. How am I not getting better at this by now? Why do I always do this stuff? I have no idea what to do about that. I think asking him to leave would probably still count enough concern for him that he would die anyway. Even if I started a fight and pissed him off or something, it wouldn't matter. It would be too late anyway. I think my best plan might be to tell him. I've never done that with anyone. I've never really had the chance. It seems like the least that I can do though. It might not mean much. He might literally drop dead on me during the conversation. But he also might give him a couple of days to prepare or something. I think I'd probably want to know. So after about 20 more minutes of existential crisis in a fish funeral, I head into the kitchen. Andrew turns around from his blender when he sees me. Hey, you feeling better? Andrew asks, throwing me a fake smile. Physically, I say. Well, that's good, Andrew says, but he makes a slightly confused face at me. I take a deep breath before I say, I'm really, really sorry, dude, I say. For what, Andrew says, raising a single eyebrow. I thought this whole roommate thing was going good. For that, actually, it is. And that's bad because you're going to die now or soon. I didn't do it on purpose, but you are, and I'm sorry. I ramble out. I'm not sure if that's blunt or unhelpfully vague. Either way, it's probably a terrible explanation. Like I said, I've never warned anyone before. I look over at Andrew, expecting him to look disbelieving or pissed or something. Instead, he's blinking slowly and then nodding. Oh, that's your deal. He says like he had just put something together. I don't have time to figure out what he means before he adds. Don't stress about it. I'm already dead, Andrew says, and giving me a half shrug. And then he laughs and shoots me an over-the-top wink, combined with a raise of his eyebrow before he asks. Should I be flattered that you were worried? I had no idea how Andrew would react to my apology, but out of all the possibilities that I had run through my head, this definitely isn't one that came up. I'm kidding, he says, wincing a little when I don't respond for a second. Sorry. The flattered part, not the dead part. I thought a joke might. Sorry. What? I say because it's all that I've got right now. You can't kill me because I'm already dead. He says as if that's the part that I'm stuck on here. I mean, okay, I'm a little stuck on all of this. But the logic of dead people can't be killed again isn't the confusing part. You eat. I say, probably stupidly, but seriously, what the heck? Okay, I'm just gonna show you. Andrew says, nodding to himself a couple of times before sitting down across from me. I'm not sure what show me means, and I'm not really all that sure I want to know what it means but I nod back at him anyway. Andrew takes a breath. He doesn't quite look like himself as he does. He looks a lot more like he had that night the blonde girl was here, paler than normal and more than a little nervous. And then he smiles. Not the fake smile that I've gotten used to in the past few weeks, with its overly perfect teeth and lack of smile lines in his eyes. No, he smiles as he looks older and younger all at once. 
He smiles and it's sad, but not at all fake. He smiles and his perfect teeth are gone, replaced with sharper ones that don't look all the way human, highlighted by two large teeth on either side, sharper than the rest, that can only be described as fangs. Oh. Andrew stops after a second or two, returning his face to a normal that apparently isn't actually normal for him at all. Powdered blood packets, he says after a second, and the shakes. You probably don't want any more details than that. Oh, I say after a minute. My voice sounds a little rough to my own ears, and it's not just because my throat is still rough from all the vomiting over the past few days. I realize that I'm just sort of staring at him, but I'm not really sure what the heck to say. I don't know what the proper response to apparently other types of monsters are real too, and you live with one is. I guess I should be less surprised. After all, the whole reason we're having this conversation is that I thought I had killed him. This feels different somehow. I had no idea. I start after a second, but don't finish the thought. I'm not sure how. That vampires are real, or that something was wrong with me. Andrew asks, leaning back on his chair. I can't tell if he's actually this casual about it, or if I looked shell-shocked enough that it's for my benefit. Either, honestly, I say, shrugging back at him. And then I frown, remembering that he somehow did know something that was wrong with me. I know that the days on the bathroom floor in this fish thing might have been a clue, but still. He also seems to know that what I am is a thing to start with. I wonder if that means there's an entire world of crap that I don't know about. Corners of the internet I haven't found yet. The do of a guy to all this or something. So, is that, I guess, that can be a runs in the family thing you were born with or something? Because you said you were dead, but... I stop. I'm wincing at myself this time. Wow, sorry, ignore that. No, you're cool, Andrew says. It's just me. It is a kind of family thing, though. But not like that. It's... Seriously, you don't have to tell me anything. Unless I guess I need to know. Roommates and all. But you don't have to tell me. I say because I could be totally wrong. But I'm pretty sure there's no story that ends in vampire that's a good story, and not an awful one. I am curious, of course. I've never talked to anyone in real life and not on a forum, who wasn't just completely normal that I know of anyway. But I don't want to push the guy to tell me about his death. No, okay, you know own a Thera, my mom's company, Andrew says, running a hand through his hair. I nod, feeling a little queasy in a way I don't think is left over from yesterday. Well, mom's kind of all doing whatever it takes to make the company successful. She doesn't really care if it's legal or not. She never has. So, maybe you already know this. But there's stuff that's the regular kind of not legal. And then, there's the stuff that the messed up nightmare kind of not legal. The crap that shouldn't exist in the real world, but it apparently does, kind of not legal. Right, I say nodding. I didn't actually know that, not really. But I figure my pills probably fall into that somewhere. So, mom and her top people know how to do all that. Who to contact for that weird underworld stuff. And who you can contact with an email and who you have to summon with a blood sacrifice. 
On the third Wednesday of the month, during a snowstorm, he says. He grins wildly at the last part, but I'm not entirely sure if that's a joke or not. That has to be dangerous, I say. You could say that, Andrew says, rolling his eyes. Anyway, Mom wanted me to be the face of the company and take it over one day. She had a very specific image in her mind. She's particular like that. A perfectionist, you know. So, she found ways to make me fit the image. He pauses for a second, looking away. I don't say anything. Half of because I'm not sure what to say and half because... I have a terrible feeling I know where this story is going. I didn't always look like this, he says, and gesturing himself with another quick eye roll. And once I did, Mom had to preserve it, so she found a way. You can't age if you're dead, and vampires get to keep their locks. But you have to do it the old-fashioned way. My mom was willing to make that sacrifice. That's a lot to agree to for the family business, I say, letting out a slow breath of my own. The tone of Andrew's voice has gotten drier than I'd ever heard it. A bitter sort of crackling I can't say I blame him for. Didn't agree, Andrew says. Sorry, I say, wincing again. It's a good thing I can't kill him because the rush of genuine sympathy I'm feeling for the guy after that story would be enough to do it. It's fine, Andrew says. And then he frowns again like he doesn't really believe that. Sorry for unloading so much on you. That's probably way more information than you wanted. My parents are still alive, I blurt. I feel stupid after saying it. But look, I'm out of practice with real conversation. They're not normally on the list of things I can do. I'm trying to say, my parents suck too. I'm not sure it's coming across very well, so I add you know, if that helps. Andrew blinks at me for a second, sort of like he had in the bathroom doorway yesterday. And then he nods like he'd figured out what I meant by it. Right, your thing, he says. And then he shoots me a questioning look and adds, I always thought that was like mostly a sex thing. Obviously not always. I'd heard it could be a friend thing or whatever. But I've only seen it advertised as a sex thing. Clearly not for you, I guess. Fish and all. Advertise, I repeated, feeling queasy again at the thought. I know from my forums that there are people like me, monsters like me who do that, who are basically killers with it. I try not to spend a lot of time thinking about them, but it's never occurred to me that don't all just hunt solo and work alone. Yeah, I don't do that. I can. It can be a sex thing. But not always, and I don't do that. I figured, Andrew says. I don't ever even do it on purpose. I could, but I never do. Except for fish. I say, laughing a little at how absurd it sounds to say that out loud for the first time ever. But that's only when I'm desperate. You had it your whole life. Andrew asks, leaning back in his chair, to grab himself one of those shake things out of the fridge. Yeah, I said nodding. Uh, how long have you been? I was 19, Andrew says. He frowns for a second, but then he grins again and adds, Don't worry, I'm not 100 years old now or anything. I'm 27. I realize as he gulps his shake that this is the longest conversation we've ever had. 
It might be the longest conversation I've had with anyone in over a decade. It would be better if it was about less horrifying things, I guess. But it's still oddly nice to be able to say actual stuff to someone. We're quiet for a minute until a loud knock at our front door startles the hell out of the both of us. Open the heck up. A loud male voice that I don't recognize says from the other side of the door, pounding on it loudly. I shoot Andrew a questioning look. Andy shrugs at me, looking just as lost as I am. I know Alicia's in there, the voice says. I'm pretty sure he kicks our door after he says it. Andrew pales, looking nervous again. The name sounds familiar, but it takes me a second to place it. I'm sure I pale too when it hits me. Alicia is that blonde girl from the other night. Crap, he mutters, standing up from the table and shooting me an apologetic look. I'm not gonna ask again. I'll knock this crappy door off its hinges, the dude in the hallway says. Andrew looks queasy himself as he opens the door. Can I help you? Andrew asks the guy at our door with his fakest smile yet. Where the heck is Alicia? The guy says. The giant guy who looks like he fills our entire doorframe. I hope Andrew's a better fighter than I am. I try to remember everything I've heard about vampires, but then I realize that I have no idea if any of it's actually true or not. Don't know an Alicia, Andrew says, trying to sound casual. Well, that's funny, the guy says, because the tracking on her phone says that you do. I don't know what you're talking about, Andrew says. The guy swings at him, but Andrew ducks fast enough that it only grazes at the top of his head. Where the heck is she? He says again, stepping in and getting in Andrew's face. It's been days since she's answered her phone. It's off now, but the last tracking was right here. So, you're gonna tell me where she is, right now, so that I can take her the heck home. Are you sure that it's this apartment? I save her my spot at the table. The guy turns his eyes to me. I don't think he saw me there before. Yeah, I'm sure, the guy says, balling his fists up again. It's a big building, and the signal in here is crappy, I say. It's not, but this guy doesn't know that. And look, I don't know your friend, but there are definitely a few dealers in the building. That part is true, but it's obviously a total gamble. Alicia had been drunk the only time that I ever saw her, but for all I know, she's a clean-cut type. Fortunately, it seems to be a gamble that pays off, because the guy slumps a little, and I can almost see some of the fight drain out of him. Gosh dang it, he says slowly. God dang it, I told her to cut that stuff out. I'm sure she'll turn up, Andrew says soothingly. Maybe sleeping something off somewhere? Yeah, the guy says. I hate when she does this. I thought she was cheating this time. He says that last part mostly to himself and heads away without another word or apology or anything. Andrew closes the door and then turns to look at me slowly. Hey, thanks for the save, he says, looking impressed. I nod. No problem, I say. If it makes you feel any better, the dude's totally abusive. Used to beat the heck out of her, Andrew says. He doesn't come back into the kitchen. He stands in the living room instead, watching me from a distance, 
It feels purposeful, and I'm sure that it is. He knows I'm not an idiot. I wasn't worried about it, I say. Andrew shoves his hands into the pockets of his jeans and looks at me again. You can just ask me if I killed her, he says. Almost a whisper, staring at the fabric of the carpet. Okay, did you kill her? I ask. I'm not sure if I wanted the answer, but I know that I needed it. If Andrew and I are going to stay roommates, we probably need to come clean about the whole killing people thing. Maybe monsters need to stick together. Only because she wanted me to. He says, looking back up at me. She was going to die anyway. I think more has happened to me this morning than it has in the past four years combined. It's a lot to take in. Yeah, sort of, Andrew says. You can get addicted to some Onothera products. Like, literally, my mom does it on purpose. It only works on some people, but it does. People can get high off them, and then they get addicted. Some people lose their minds on it. And that's before it starts to eat away at them, from the inside. Also, literally, I ask. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm certain I'm not. Very literally and painfully, I've been told. Alicia was addicted and she was dying from it. She was investigating the company, trying to find answers. She hunted me down. And then she found out what I am. Andrew stopped and looks troubled. She didn't want a long and painful death. And I've learned how to do it fast. I've done it before. Mom thinks that I shut her up before she went to the press, but she asked. Okay, I said nodding. I shrugged my shoulders. The last thing I'm in any position to do is judge other people's choices about death. I can't even say I'm surprised. It all fits together now. That lingering death feeling in the apartment had been because Alicia was dead in the apartment, at least for a little while. That block of time Andrew had been gone right after makes sense too. I wonder if I should be more bothered, but I'm honestly not. Maybe I shouldn't believe him so easily that it had been a completely benevolent killing. Maybe I'm naive because I haven't had a friend in a while. I've never been the overly trusting type though, and I do believe him. You're not looking to break the lease, Andrew says, looking over at me. I wonder why he doesn't flee the dang country, run from his mom and from it all. I wonder if the reason is even more horrifying than all the crap he's already told me. You're not on the lease, I say, but I grin at him when I do. He shakes his head and sits back down. Thanks, he says, reaching for his shake again. Anything I can do to make it up to you? Uh, more fish or anything? I should be good. New pills get here in 48 hours, I say, shaking my head. The events of the morning hit me hard now that we're alone again. Vampires and dead girls and skincare companies with a connection to things that shouldn't even exist. Things like me. Monsters. A thought occurred to me. A reckless, ridiculous idea. I grin slowly as I think of it, looking at my vampire roommate and thinking about a company that sells products that you can die from and that sacrifices family members for public image. Hey, Drew, I said grinning at him. You know, I just said I don't do the thing on purpose and never as a sex thing. Yeah, he says, looking at me curiously. I can't keep the grin off my face when I respond back to him. So, 
Is your mom hot? I ask, fake casual and leaning back in my chair a little and still grinning. I'm out of practice with jokes too, but I hope that one landed. It seems like a good way to bring up the idea. For the record, I'm not actually planning to have sex with his mom. He is the only friend I've ever had as an adult and that's weird. I am offering to kill her though, if you want. Maybe she needs an intern, or someone to really admire her business empire from afar. It seems like the friendly thing to do. And now that I've finally found a good roommate, I should make sure that he stays a while. Drew must understand my meaning perfectly because when he nods and grins back at me, he uses his real smile, fangs and all. I hope you all enjoyed today's stories, and I want to give a big thanks to today's sponsors, NordVPN. Head to nordvpn.com slash mrgreeps for 66% off their two-year plan plus one month for free. And BetterHelp. Creepscast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash mrgreeps. Please support today's sponsors if you can as they help keep this content free for all listeners. And as always, stay creepy.